Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You also can find the show on Facebook. We ask you to subscribe to our feed. Get those new episodes right to you through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or NationalReview.com. Click on the podcast tab there. Find all the fine NR podcasts, including ours. And uh, where, uh, where you're able, like Apple Podcasts, feel free to leave some reviews, help others find the show. Also, we direct you to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicalbeats, where you can support us and help the show stay ad-free as it is right now. We have entry-level support there for, you know, a little tip and uh, voting privileges on a few things over time. Mid-level for early access to episodes, and you get them at a higher audio quality. And then the upper-level bestest friend uh, level for early access, the higher audio quality. You get monthly exclusive content episodes. You get remastered episodes. You get special playlists. You get much more at the upper level. That's all at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. I want to say, oh. you know, please please be our bestest friends. Of course. Uh, because like, if you do that, I might even respond to your emails. And I don't do that for anybody, <laughs> including family. Sometimes even me. I just, you know. Uh, yes. At Scott Bertram on Twitter for me, uh, my tag team partner who has already chipped in and asked you to please join us at the upper level at patreon.com slash politicalbeats is Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I am feeling fine. You know, I, I, I'm just, I'm sitting here, you know, looking outside the window at a torrential uh, thunderstorm. And I have to point out that, you know, sometimes it snows in April, but also it, sometimes it rains. A lot of times this year it rains in April. Yes. Uh, at Esoteric CD on Twitter, you are coming to us in the middle of our Prince series of episodes. Part one is in the can. You've heard it. This is part two. Our guest for part one is back for part two. It's Eli Lake, contributing editor of Commentary, a fellow at the Clements Center at UT Austin, and the host of a new podcast debuting, I think this month now, on the nebulous network called The Re-Education with Eli Lake. You can find him on Twitter at Eli Lake. Eli, thanks so much for coming back for part two. Oh, it's great to be back. This is going to be a good episode. This is some genius work we're going to be discussing here. Yeah. And uh, an overwhelming amount of material to cover in, again, a small amount of time, much like the last episode, which went four hours. We we might not go quite so long this time. We'll see how things play out. But, Jeff, we ended part one with Prince in Around the World in a Day, uh, 1985, the follow-up to Purple Rain, which uh, uh, did not sell as well as Purple Rain, but some people, like me, liked it quite a bit on the last episode. And now we get a chance to dive into just an enormous amount of, of material and work as we set up this part two of our Prince episode. Yeah, well, the, you know, the, the story of Prince, and this is why it's a great three-parter, because it's kind of like Neil Young, where there's the music and then there's the narrative, the tale behind it. We, hey, this is the VH1 Behind the Music podcast, basically, because Prince is more than just that. So you have to understand where he was in time. Where did we leave off? So he records Purple Rain, conquers the world. Before he even tours Purple Rain, he records Around the World in the Day. It's in the can. He goes out to tour Purple Rain in 1985 as one of the, you know, two or three biggest pop stars on the planet. He's actually playing some of the stuff that'll be on Around the World, which comes out in the middle of the tour, you know, in those shows. But it's, you know, it's a weird hybrid thing. He's clearly restless. He's already prepared to move on. And then what does he do? He cuts short the tour. He could have toured Purple Rain the way Bruce Springsteen toured Born in the USA, man. 
I mean, imagine if Bruce Springsteen had put out Born in the USA and then put out all the outtakes from Born in the USA as its follow-up album and just kept touring. Well, he actually didn't, but he still toured until like 1985 off of that record. Prince could have done it, but he didn't. He wanted to get back to work. So he had all of these irons in the fire. He had a movie project going. He had a project with Wendy and Lisa and the revolution, sort of an, uh, again, a sort of an album follow-up to where he was working with on, you know, around the world in a day. all these things going but then in the meantime there every all of his you know former colleagues and competitors were catching up with his sound and taking it and just you know turning over the charts on their own and dominating it and that was what eli wanted to talk about he wanted to sort of set not just the scene for prince but the scene for the musical world at large that's right um so there's a lot of groups we could focus on there's ready for the world which is a prince knockoff band there's, you can go and find some pretty obscure artists like O'Brien, but the breakout star of 1986 is Michael Jackson's sister, Janet Jackson, whose producers are the uh, Time alum who were fired by Prince from the band. <laughs> Whoops. Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam, Jam and Lewis, uh, you know, who, again, we, we, we discussed it in the first episode, but these guys helped to find the sound of the 80s along with Prince. The best revenge is living well. I mean, you talk about it, it's like, hey, you know, you fired us. That's not our fault. I'm sorry. So it's worth just looking at the album Control because Jam and Lewis are, I think, musical geniuses in their own right. And I in think their... this album, by the way, is so much better than Rhythm Nation. And I don't know why people don't say that. I've always thought it was the superior record. I People can debate it. I, I love Control. I think it's a great record, but it's also a Prince record. Let's be real. It is a That's Prince probably why I like it more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is a Prince record. So yeah. Jam and Lewis will will evolve, and they will have a different. They will continue to innovate. But in 1986, Janet Jackson puts out a Prince record, and in some ways, it's like a better Prince record than the ones she's sort of copying. And I'm thinking specifically of the song "Nasty," which clearly a reference to Nasty Girls by Vanity Six. But the difference is, is that the, in Jam and Lewis's hands, Janet Jackson becomes empowered and is not just singing pornographic lyrics that Prince wrote for Vanity. She's singing about her own agency. That's the whole theme of the album. And I think it's a more effective song. And, you know, in it's not, I don't want to accuse Jam and Lewis necessarily of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, thievery here, because as Jam and Lewis have said in many subsequent interviews, Prince would often, when he was looking for some sort of inspiration, kind of go out and start jamming with the time when they were in the group. Mm -hmm. And after a while, Jam and Lewis say this explicitly, they would avoid these jam sessions because they believed <laughs> that Prince was stealing all of their ideas and then taking credit for them. So they would, he would, they sort of talk about it like he would come to, you know, a rehearsal or something, they would be playing Jelly Bean and everybody like that. 
And then all of a sudden they realized they had to go to lunch. <laughs> they didn't want to like, because they, because Prince was, you know, well, listening in on their, on their licks. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was, he, he, he took credit. He was a cadger. He was shameless about it. Yeah. Absolutely. He, he, he should have credited Andre Simone for do me baby. We'll find in he this reminds, episode. He reminds me of Jagger and Richards, frankly. You know, it would just be like, yeah, sorry, McTaylor. You know, like <laughs> it's a Jagger Richards outfit here. There's no, there are no outsiders. Nobody's nobody else is allowed to play. And now, yeah, that is the way that Prince kind of approached songwriting too. So when a lot of people were listening to Nasty or the song Control or something like that, and you know, Jam and Lewis would say, "Oh, really? You you think uh, we're stealing from Prince? Well, I have to tell you, Prince originally stole from us." I mean, listen, I think the real answer here is that um, obviously the first three records for Prince, For You, Prince, Prince, and Dirty Mind are like Prince-only affairs for the most part. But then he starts collaborating far more with his band. And it you really have to look at it as Prince is the lead artist. He's this it's, he's the visionary, but he's, he's, he's working with other great musicians who deserve some of the credit for you know, all these records after 1999, really, like, you know, and specifically, I'm thinking of uh, what we're talking about soon as Parade. So I just want to say, so the sound of, of 85, 86 is Prince's everywhere. And that, to me, settles the debate of Michael versus Prince, because, you know, Michael's sister made a Prince record. And um, even though Michael would end up selling far more records with his follow-up to Thriller, Bad, in 1987, than anything Prince does. Michael's kind of not the influential trendsetter. He's not a, a kind of the cutting edge of the culture the way that Prince is in the in this decade, and particularly this period. And how can, how can he be an icon of the cutting edge of the culture if he's literally starring at Disney World, Captain EO? I mean, he got yeah. Captain EO-ified, despite his weirdness. And, of course, that would, that would have its own repercussions in the MJ story later on. But, like, yeah, if you're, you know, if George Lucas is directing your Disney World film, you, you, you're not taking the same kinds of risks anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I say this, by the way, as I'm a huge Prince fan, and I feel that, you know, it's not like really, it's stupid to compare. They're both great geniuses and artists. But I think Off the Wall is as good or maybe better than anything Prince ever. I think Off the Wall is one of the greatest yes. albums ever made. But that said, Prince is far more culturally relevant. And the world is catching up to Prince in this period. So that is, and it, it's a little bit of a paradox. Because on the one hand, Prince can look around and say, everybody sounds like me. Um you know, I'm thinking of the great Drake line of if all I hear is me, then who should I be afraid of? Um, on the other hand, uh, we will soon find out. Um, and I don't know if we want to start with Parade, but um, he has his first. Well, we won't. 
we won't start there. We're going to put that off. Okay, well, so we'll put it off. So I, I'm going to you know, take. I'm yeah. going to set it up from here. Okay. All right. So, so I, I think the idea of Prince getting very kind of uh, obsessed with you know his imitators and his chart position is going to sort of be a, a thread that we'll be tracing through not only this episode but the next one as well. Uh, that's sort of you know he's perpetually at war with himself in so many ways throughout this era. His reaction to success, I think, is maybe the way you can characterize the path he travels during this era. But where was he right at the end of 1984, beginning of 85 in that era? He, or actually in 85. He comes off the road, um, and first thing he's working on are the, all these little preliminary ideas that he's working for two things. One, he's got this movie idea. Oh, God. It's called Under the Cherry Moon. And it is a disaster that I'll return to in five seconds. But it's important to note that all the songs there were set off for that project. In the meantime, he's also working with Wendy and Lisa, Prince and the Revolution. Kind of like, here's the real follow-up. That's a soundtrack project. Here's the real follow-up to Around the World in the Day and Purple Rain. Uh, and none of this music really ever ends up coming out. It's all outtakes. Stuff like very spooky, psychedelic you know, stuff that very much follows up on the around the world feeling. Scott wondered in that previous episode of mm -hmm. ours, like, hey, where's more of this music? And so well, here it is. He never released it. Big tall wall, you know, in a in a dark room with no light. Uh, you know, others here within us, which is like ghostly whales. Or like ghosts. It's like this weird psychedelic track. Even the original version of Crystal Ball fits in with this. Uh, I don't know, Scott. You're the one, actually, I want to hear from first because this is just something I want to touch on briefly before we get to Parade. This is a road not taken. This is Prince kind of going more psychedelic, almost, you know, like he's taking a lot of ecstasy or LSD or something <laughs> like that. Do you like this music nearly as much as I do? Because I love it. I'm going to build a big top wall. It is. It does sound like the natural progression of where you would take the sound of around the world in a day if you wanted to continue it on. And as Jeff mentions, uh, essentially none of this sees light of day on any sort of official releases in the years to come. But it's all very good. And I would say, uh, I would point out, of course, I, I would not have stumbled across this. This, uh, you know, Jeff curates some things for us for particular uh, episodes. And this is one where uh, we got, what, 60 some songs. I'm, I'm like but, the guy who sherpas you up to the top that's of Mount right. Everest. That's right. And I, like, so, I will guide you up the path to make sure that you don't slip. <laughs> so I appreciate it because this is all, yeah, this is, as I said, the natural progression. And I like it an awful lot. Big Tall Wall. Um, man, there's the, the sitar chant, touches. Right? The, yeah, just the, the, the three-note hook, the chorus, the chant. Um, that works nicely. Large Room with No Light is one of my favorite songs from this particular era here. Almost all these start, and I say, I'm not sure he's going to pull it off 
and then by you know the 90 second mark the two minute mark it all comes together uh large room with no light is is actually a song like that it's like this jazz uh latin fusion sound <laughs> And a wonderful such diverse music there's no like like all this stuff like you could assemble a great album from it there's no single and it's just him off the wall everywhere rubber room it's like a great lost era of his music power fantastic fits in here too right and yeah that, that... oh my gosh that big jazz blow at the beginning of it wow where there's horns and flute and piano and these brushed drums and that's what nine the first 90 seconds almost two minutes before uh, Lisa plays the piano figure that starts the the real song. One of the wonderful things about hearing this Power Fantastic uh, outtake is Prince. You hear Prince's studio directions and studio. Doesn't he sound so normal? He's, He's like, sound, all right, yes, you know, like I we're know. gonna have fun here. This might not be the take, but we're just gonna. He just sounds like, hey, I could I could totally get along with this guy in a studio. And he's telling you, you know, just have fun, and you know, we'll, we'll bring it down real slow. And in the middle of the song, he's telling people to stop or bridge or, you know, the, the, the command in studio. The song itself just unfolds at this very casual pace. It's not in any hurry at all to show you what it has, but it's a very powerful song. Like that instrumental, Alexa de Paris or de, or de Paris. I'm not sure. Um, if Prince is being pretentious, it's Alexa de Paris. Right, right. That's one. If you played it for me, I wouldn't guess at a thousand years it was Prince, and not because like a Smith's instrumental, frankly. Yeah, yeah. It's not because it's kind of strange and out there, and it's not because it's some sort of like Joe Satriani sort of, you know, uh, pyrotechnic uh, guitar. It's just I I don't recall him doing a whole lot of stuff in this vein but it's so nice no you know, instrumental no lyrics obviously uh but it's such a nice song all of these songs and there's what 12 13 that you point out from this dream factory era most all the teacher teacher 
is another one that, that really benefits with a little from having, harpsichord, right? Yes, yeah. having Wendy and Lisa involved and that lightness that they bring to his music. It's a wonderful little era that, again, didn't see the light of day until, what, the, the, the giant 65-cut expanded Sound of the Times edition. Right, exactly. I mean, the fans have known about this stuff for a long time, and because... Prince fans are like very obsessive compulsive like arranging things by recording date like we've known how to like piece it all together for a while but in general yeah it was only officially released just like a year and a half ago or something like that Eli do you have any thoughts about this stuff before we get to talking about well parade well, I just want to highlight Dream Factory, uh, which well, no, 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 no. We're going to talk about that when we talk oh, about okay. after Parade. Yeah, because yeah, okay, this is my bad. It's really hard to sequence all this stuff. Dream <laughs> Factory will come after Parade. Okay, well then I don't. Okay, so it's it's this is an outtake, which was not mentioned, and I thought you'd mentioned it, but it's hard to say whether it's it's both a Purple Rain and a Sign of Time. But I love the song Love and Sex, which the Sheila E vocals i didn't include it on that little curated set that i sent to everyone but it is great yeah um so i so that one i i recommend but all of the ones that you recommended are great um and i agree with your um why well, are we talking we're not talking about crystal ball yet right so well no, no but, okay. but but you what you can do after you're done with this though is, yeah. is i think that you're perfectly positioned to explain yeah. how what happened with parade and under the cherry moon yes yeah no i want to i just and i would just say i, I think you make this point about crystal ball it's better as a three minute three and a half minute song than it is as a 12 minute you know massive and a lot of times i like the longer print stuff um but he does extra things here. There are strings that he adds here that make it yes. so much richer, and that's what's different. In your name we pray. working again well we'll talk about this with parade he's working with claire fisher the great arranger um who becomes an important collaborator in this period um and again i mean like we are in just so such a creative uh gold mine for prince that he's like, recording every single day so eli like, why does he continue to make these regrettable creative decisions Okay. That's what I want to know. Where, how does he have such incredible creative fertility, as we're going to just constantly talk about here, and yet he does Under the Cherry Moon? I want to live life to the ultimate high. Maybe I'll die young like heroes die. Maybe I'll kiss you. Some wild special way If nobody kills me Or thrills me soon I'll die in your arms Under the cherry moon That's all right. Under the cherry moon I feel 
in the hands of a better kind of director and producer, if Prince wasn't as big an artist, it could have been a very interesting movie. Um, he's very, he, uh, Prince kind of falls in love with Paris in this period. They move to Paris to, uh, everyone goes to Paris at this, in this period to, um, to film Cherry Moon. You can hear it in Parade, but you know, we should just let the cat out of the bag. Under the Cherry Moon is the first like serious critical setback that Prince, you know, I, it's not really comparable to anything. I mean, controversy didn't sell as well, you know, and Dirty Mind didn't sell as well, but they were still critical successes. People didn't really notice for you. He wasn't a star at that point, but since he kind of, you know, went into superstar mode um, and, you know, I think I said in my notes, Prince at this point is in very rare company. He is both considered like he's recognized as a, as a genius in his own time and is commercially on top of the world. I think one and, other thing I have to, to leap in to add is that Prince yeah. is acutely self-conscious of his own public perception. He reads his news clippings. You know, um, he always used to aver in public, well, I don't listen to anyone else's music, and I don't read what people say about me. He's a liar, and the fact yeah, that he, he felt, the need, the felt <laughs> that he felt the need to say it just is the, 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 the tell, the giveaway. All right, he's acutely aware of where he thinks he ranks, or where others think he ranks in the quote pantheon is bruce up or mj up or am i down madonna like he cares about that but he's also he he's also comparing himself he's also him. comparing himself to the to the past generations yes he's constantly comparing himself to james brown and sly stone and he had up until that point he had, nobody had ever written a review about him that was like well he's losing the plot People are like, I don't know if I like Around the World as much as Purple Rain or 1999, but that's interesting. And then once Under the Cherry Moon comes out, people are like, okay, listen, you are just – you are disappearing up your own posterior. Yes, and Under the Cherry Moon is Prince's fault entirely because, A, I mean, is it, maybe this is a good time to talk about the relationship with – the end of the relationship with Susanna Melvoin because – and he he propose. I mean, she thinks he proposes to her. He disagrees. He gives her a ring. He said he she she travels with him to Paris to make this movie. And this is important because Susanna Melvoin is the twin sister of Wendy Melvoin, his guitar player, who is uh you know the 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 lover of of Wendy Coleman, his synth player. The emphasis and here has to be, uh, by the way, on twin. So like you know, yeah. so so Wendy's got to be thinking like, does he look at me and? Like every time she's yes. playing and they're singing these songs, it it has to be an odd dynamic. It's 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 a bad dynamic, but it's made worse because Prince is such a dog. He's such a misogynist. Like he <laughs> he has this side of him where he treats women like crap, and he sends Susanna home, tells her to redecorate their mansion. They're going to live together, and um, then proceeds to have an affair with the star of the star they've chosen for under cherry moon he by the way who is Kristen scott thomas yes so it's like actors from the english patients right and so and then he also uh you know has like various like playmates who he knows fly into paris for like it's all this stuff and obviously wendy and lisa see all this that's got to kind of alienate them i you know and they say so i think in later interviews and then I, i find this story is hilarious because nobody understands under Cherry Moon, Prince is doing like script rewrites. 
it's basically, even though he's not the director, he is the director. It's his vision. It's his failure. Nobody understands the movie. And then there's this great promotion for Under Cherry Moon because he's still a super duper star. And MTV and Warners decides that one lucky fan is going to get a date with Prince in their hometown, which will and their hometown will be where we'll have the premiere of Under the Cherry Moon. So that turned out to be uh, Sheridan, Wyoming. (laughs) (laughs) And. Needless to say, uh, all the people, so Prince flies like two Learjets full of celebrities and other artist friends of his to this tiny town in Wyoming. They all end up partying at like this dinky Holiday Inn. And this kind of confused fan, you know, he goes with the fan to the movie. It's like this whole televised event. You can all watch the stuff on YouTube. Um, but it's like a perfect metaphor because the whole thing is just such a cluster F, you know, in the sense that, you know, th- th- they hadn't really thought this through. And um, it's like he brought Paisley Park and Hollywood to this small little town. Nobody understood the damn movie and it flopped. It didn't sell. It got savage reviews. So this is a huge like, you know, it's the first real setbacks that he's had at the in moment the, when the his sound is everywhere. Like and in, in the meantime, Parade, the album that is the soundtrack oh, wow. to Under a Cherry Moon, is one of his finest albums ever. Tell you, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to make my top two at the end. Uh, I want to start this one. I usually don't. Yes. But I have to say that Parade has got to be one of the, of, of his imperial era. It is easily the most underappreciated record of his career uh, simply because it has like one song that the whole planet knows. And everyone knows Kiss. And I'll let either one of you two talk about Kiss because it's great. And the story behind it is hilarious. Classic Prince egoism <laughs> at its finest. Credit um, ceiling. Not, not for me to tell. But the thing is, is that nobody talks about any of the other songs on Parade. This is him in his avant-garde, funky, weird, exploratory best during the 80s. Prince had this problem as a guy who liked to record all of his music alone, and you'll keep seeing it crop up, especially when he tries to deal uh, you know, with hip-hop and you know, the advance of hip-hop later in his career. Uh, his problem is that he, he keeps himself set to a beat throughout a song because he records with you know, yes. preset drum, not only drum machines, or he'll just lay down a live track, yes. right? But either way, you're locked in, yes. all right? You cannot slow down or start up. There is no such thing as a Prince song that starts slow organically and then builds <laughs> up pace. Think about that. It's one thing that you don't realize when you think about Prince music. It doesn't have like – there's no one of these like slow, on-rushing things. Uh, it's always at a set tempo. 
And he tries sometimes to avoid this by editing little different bits of songs and tracks together, like on the long version of Crystal Ball, but I don't think it works as well. So he has that limitation that he's working within. And yet, like, the way he solves that problem is uh, on the first track, the first four songs on Parade, which is Christopher Tracy's Parade, uh, you know, New Position, I Wonder You, um, and then Under the Cherry Moon. He just recorded them all at once. He planned it out. He charted it out, and he just said, I lay down this drum track, 15 minutes of consecutive music, and then I'm going to overdub it. And then he just chopped it up into individual songs. That level of focus was what he was able to achieve at this point in his career to solve this problem. Uh, uh, parade is just a huge amount of wild experimentation with drums, with synthesizers, with different sorts of keyboards. Wendy and Lisa contribute more to this than any other record in Prince's career. And I think that's something that Eli is going to want to talk about and I think appropriately focus on is that this is one of Prince's greatest records. It's also one of Prince's most truly collaborative records. Uh, but before Eli, I'm going to throw you a banana peel here. Before you get to talk about it, I wanted to know what Scott thought about it because this is really the end of that weird kind of psychedelic sounding Prince that I know that he was he was drawn to. I was, and I think I should like it better. But I found mm. myself um, less impressed than you, mm. with exceptions. I think there is some excellent stuff here. Um, it's it, you know there's a bright sound to the album. It does have some of the around the world feel to it. I, I the way, way I said it, it has some of that feel, but I, I think less of the charm of around the world in, in a day. Uh, I, it will I, grow on you, I guarantee you, because maybe that was the way I first reacted to it as well. Yeah, and and again, I'm the new guy here. It may take a few more spins for it to uh, to soak in, but uh, actually. The second time I went back is when I realized I probably didn't like it as much as some of the other work from this particular era and around, you know, the Dream Factory era, too. There are a few things here. I'll talk about Kiss because Kiss has always really left me in wonder because even when it was a hit, it was, it was, it was, this was a number one song off of Parade. I remember hearing it and seeing the video on MTV and just knowing there was absolutely nothing like this in a way it was me wondering to myself how could this be popular because nothing else sounds like it and yet yeah. i liked it too and so it was that it was that sort of odd conundrum even at the time it was just in and of itself
Well, that was a miracle of Prince, wasn't it? That he was so bizarre, and yet he kind of still slotted in among all the other like random like Van Halen hits with yeah. Sammy Hagar. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the Tom Tom Jones covers the song uh, at some point down the line too. No, you know, no bass in Kiss, just like on When Doves Cry. He's in that super super high falsetto, and of course, what's important about Kiss is as much what it leaves out as what is left in the silence the space uh the way the space moves the song I mean, the, the 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 silence has moved the song forward it's truly an incredible piece of arrangement and you know the story uh, i'll shorten it and you guys can correct me the story uh, the background of kiss is that is a song that prince did and handed off to one of his his guys it was his in a band called maserati yeah. and, and they came forward uh with with this arrangement and and essentially you know the sparse drum track they they did that and prince came in one day overheard them working the song and said oh wait, wait, wait. no 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 this song is now way too good for you guys <laughs> i'm taking it back and making it mine and there is some consternation about how much you know credit should have been given on the songwriting to to the maserati guys how much they changed the original prince tune but it's a prince song and it's a number well, I, one and he I, was right. i've heard the demo version eli sent it to us and it is very different Ultimately, though, I'm a very legalistic person about this. <laughs> he gets the credit because it's still the same song, but they totally rearranged it. They totally improved the arrangement, and it is like one of those uh, "Prince is a Dog." You know, Eli also pointed out, um, you know, earlier that you know he, he uh, you know, he said that Prince is a bit of a dog, or well, more than a bit of a dog lyrically. But I'll never, I'll never forget my favorite single insult. Uh, I don't want to sound sexist, but it's really funny when he says to a woman, act your age, not your shoe size, <laughs> which is it's just wonderful. What a wonderful line. Women The other song I want to highlight before turning it over to Eli is one I love, and it very well could end up on my final uh, five list in this episode. That's Mountains, which I yes. think ended up being a single from this record. Yeah, this is what I mean when I say, like, why don't people talk about some of the rest but of But that song is great. And I'm going to say something, and Jeff, you can tell me I'm crazy. I, I, mm -hmm. I mentioned this in an email. There are going to be parts of this episode that I, I don't really have the vocabulary to explain because the whole hip-hop rap, genre of the late 80s and early 90s i was n that was not my scene so there, there are things that prince is doing that i i can hear do end up elsewhere but i can't really explain how, yeah, how that happened boat, I mean, but yeah. but with mountains and jeff you tell me if i'm nuts i listen to this song five six times you know what i hear on mountains well i hear like reflector era arcade fire yeah of that's course. what i hear on mountains uh well, it's I, that same loping beat you hear the boom yeah boom 
that exactly what what you're hearing. And I and I I just love it. This is a Wendy and Lisa co-write. Uh, they come in and get to contribute on vocals, which are which are really magical. Has this rollicking groove that it's giant, all about the synths, those, those, yes, those tinkling, horn clinkling synths. I love yeah. it. And and those stabs throughout. It's got wonderful momentum to it. Um, I might not. He's incorporating love... horns here too yes. for the first time ever. That's that's significant because. You know, I'm, just, I'm probably stealing all Eli's thunder. It's like one of the big holdouts Prince had is that, you know, Prince guy who taught himself to play every instrument, the one instrument he could never, ever play <laughs> were horns. And so that was why he, is, he was adamant that, oh, damn it, you know, I'm going to have synths that are just as good as horns. And so in his early stuff, it sounds so skeletal where he's using synthesizers to fill in for what horns would be. Well, now you hear him, you know, he's really working horns in. And so he did it's just mm-hmm. a quiet and organic thing. He doesn't forefront them, but they work well. I may not love Parade, but I do love Mountains, and I think it's one of his best songs of this era. I said, Absolutely right about mountains. That is a masterpiece, and uh, it's also yeah. I mean, and, and Jeff is right that this is the most collaborative album he's made with Wendy and Lisa. Um, I you know we we talked about Maserati. There's a famous you know the, in Alex Hahn's biography. There's a scene of him shooting hoops at Paisley Park. He's got a boombox and he's listening to the Maserati remake of Kiss, and he just says. This is too good for Maserati. I'm taking this. So, I mean, and that said, like, it sounds like a Charlie Murphy story. It does sound like a Charlie Murphy story, but at at the same time, credit, I mean, Prince. The man has an eye for a a hit. (laughs) Maserati had a good, that was a great, that was a great structure. And then Prince puts his lyrics and that shimmering, beautiful, not like uh, guitar chord. Over did it, 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 yeah, yeah, that, with that, the that, non-linear that, echo. Which it's like makes a, br- it... I think it's a brittle. I believe it's a Fairlight CMI synthesizer, which is the same thing that Kate Bush was like obsessed with at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. So he he kind of takes this. He um, so so Maserati remakes a, a mediocre song and makes it pretty good, and then Prince comes in and makes it, you know, I, a number one hit single. Right. Yeah. And number it, one single, but like one of his like most known songs. And it, it I'm sorry that it, it's the Maserati song. We would not be talking about it. It would not be this huge hit. <laughs> Prince made it. You needed to have that extra thing on top of it. So yes. I hear I hear really white guys with graying sideburns doing acoustic guitar covers of that song in bars. I would not be hearing that if it was just the Maserati version. Yes, there you go. Exactly. And 
you know, I mean, the only thing I should say is I feel like this is in conversation, obviously, with the classic James Brown funk, but he makes it so different. Uh, everybody read the National Review article by Jeff uh, on the occasion of Prince's death in uh, from 20s, because you get into this whole thing about how he's taking from all these different things, kind of making them his own. You know, everyone borrows, but the great ones, the great artists steal. And he's so he's I almost feel like he's stealing from James Brown because it is a unique sound yet you can tell that this comes from the classic funk mm -hmm. of jb in like 19 in the early 70s but it um, makes it relevant again and that's what that's yes. what else you know I, I, to, to talk about another one i think in a similar mind that that it should get talked about a, a lot more i love another lover hole in, in oh Manhattan. hell yeah that's like the moody like the, it, it, it is yeah. it is that moody dark kind of aggressive funk but tight you need another lover like i need yeah. a hole in your head that is a great melody it's a great chorus great hook i give my love i give my life i give my body and my life we were inseparable i guess i gave you all of my time now you need insanity and you don't even know the score why can't you learn to play the game, baby? Don't you know that you need more? You need another lover like you need a hole in your head. Baby, baby, you know there ain't no other that can do the duty in your bed, yeah, yeah. And it's like I feel like sometimes people now retrospectively assess Prince like did it make the greatest hits because there's so many albums where do you start there are just there every one of these records that we'll be talking about has just little gems just hiding away yeah, mountains should be on the greatest hits it's I, I I compare mountains in a sense to why you want to treat me so bad it's like that was such a great mm -hmm. single why didn't it do better on the charts um and I would I love the end of Mountains where it gets into this kind of like really jazzy chords um, and you hear that popping bass solo reminding me a little bit of I'm Yours. Um, I can't say enough about Mountains, but let's talk about the elephant in the room, the great Sometimes It Snows in April. Hey, do you, do you think that's just like somebody selling ice to Eskimos? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So I, I, didn't, I didn't know that this critic who, who who apparently like loves Prince but thinks that this is kind of a BS song. This is one of Prince's. This is this is my making my top five at the end. Uh, uh, full disclosure, me too. All so right. Michelangelo Matos, who I actually really like his writing. Uh, he writes very well on Prince. He's yeah. He called uh, sometimes it snows in April melodramatic bullshit, which Prince sells like it's ice to penguins. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Uh, I thought it was Eskimos, right? Uh, right. Or uh, now, I mean, no, it's a brilliant song. It's one of his best songs. It's one of the best songs ever written about death and loss. In my view, it's up there with "In My Life" by the Beatles. Um, and you know this was not a hit it was not a single but after he died it kind of took on obviously a new uh meaning because he died on the same day in 2016 that he recorded this way back in 85 um you know make of that what you will i will only say one more thing about it uh because it's gorgeous the music speaks for itself the original the thing that you hear on parade is the demo and if you listen closely you can hear like the chair squeaking and it's just Wendy on acoustic guitar, 
Lisa on acoustic piano, and Prince singing. Originally, they wanted Claire Fisher to provide the orchestration behind it. That demo was so moving and so raw and so honest that they decided to keep it as is. And what you're hearing is that, and then it's timeless. Sometimes it snows in April. Sometimes I feel so bad. Sometimes, sometimes I wish that life was never ending. But all good things they say never last. And of course, they were right to do so. I mean, Absolutely, they were right to do so. It's just, I mean, and I again, my theory here is that Prince needed Wendy and Lisa and Susanna to get him to this place where he could kind of express that emotional vulnerability. He was able to express feelings of heartbreak and lust before. He was always a musical genius. But to kind of get to this place where he could really sing this compelling about death, even though the song is about, you know, this plot line of a bad movie <laughs> it's universal because everybody can listen to that and remember someone in their life who they loved who died who's no longer my my my, my 100 accurate theory eli is simply yeah. this that if he had if he had not begun the song with the lyric christopher tracy and if yeah. he just like saying you know some dude somewhere <laughs> i don't yeah. know then people wouldn't judge it that way because the people wouldn't associate it with this film specifically and this character who means nothing and it's nonsense. But yeah, the song is universally applicable. I mean, it, it, it's one of his greatest tunes. That takes us to uh, 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 thank God you have your Mount Everest like Sherpa to help you along with this because this is probably one of the most confused eras of Prince's entire career. Uh, thankfully, has a big reward at the end of it, folks. In fact, it has two big rewards, one of which you're probably not even aware of. After Parade comes out and flops, or rather, Under the Cherry Moon comes out and the movie flops, Parade, though, doesn't sell that much either. It sells less than Around the World sold, and of course, Around the World sold less than Purple Rain sold. The trajectory here is clear. Prince is not thrilled. He's also now, at this point, fighting with Wendy and Lisa. There's a lot of creative disputes. Uh, they tour Parade. It's a great tour. It's a fantastic show. I, mean, I, th you know, I think Eli would argue that it's probably Prince's best, best live era. I think he's not wrong. I mean, there's just a lot of a lot of jazz on stage, but man, they're basically Wendy and Lisa want more credit and creative control than they're ever going to be given with Prince, and so they they're gone and they duck they're out. Famously pushed to the to the back of the stage. Yeah, but, so the, the dancers, dancers front, the dancers you know. can come up front, and they're like, "Are you kidding? Me? No, <laughs> we wrote half of this music. We are not going to be sidelighted like that." So they quit, and of course. That means that the working version of an album Prince had already been assembling and that parallel track to Parade that I discussed before uh, suddenly gets revised. This has been the thing that he had tentatively called Dream Factory. Dream Factory. It opens and closes with songs about dreams. And there's a lot of little dream interstitials and very kind of, a, kind of gets at the kind of weird haunted and unsettled place that Prince psychologically must have been at at the time.
And of course, the track listing changes over and over as he falls out more and more with Wendy and Lisa. So it becomes, you know, newer stuff comes in that doesn't have them involved. What you end up settling on was a double LP that he was prepared to release called Dream Factory, a double record, kind of like, you know, sort of psychologically, there's a response there. So in 1999, here's this thing. This thing never came out. Sign of the Times, the record everyone's familiar with, came out a little bit later. And everyone thinks of that as his response. But this was the first thing he thought of. And what is fascinating to me is that there is like a Venn diagram of overlap between what Dream Factory was and what Sign of the Times became. And it's shockingly small. These are both double albums. They share five tracks, identical songs, eight, eight songs identically if you're actually talking about edits and mixes, but only eight. So you have basically entirely different visions of ways Prince could have gone during this era. When we did the run-up to the show, I sent the Dream Factory album to Scott, who's never heard any of this shit, nope. and Eli, who knows all of it by heart. Because I said, like, what do you think about this version of what Prince could have done next versus the one that he did? in my mind essentially that question um you know if, if you chose one if you, if you choose the the stream factory uh, uh, uh running order that, that jeff passed along or sign of the times um which which do you think is the right decision just think about the way the the albums begin they're so radically different yes different moves well, different attempts of going for different things are so different yeah i mean vision start or vision starts dream factory which is just lisa at the piano just you're entering softly into this dream state of dream factory Sign of the Times, which we'll get to in a moment, does not start that way whatsoever. Big Very social different. relevance. Yes, you know, yes, yes. Uh, you know, a state of the state of the nation sort of address from Prince starts Sign of the Times. So very shortly, I'd say, very quickly, I'd say, I, I think in the end, with the record company's um, 
uh, suggestion to make it a, a double LP, not the triple LP, to prune it a bit down to what it is. I think Sign of the Times is a little better. Uh, well, okay, in my mind. The, the but, progression is difficult to understand, just to be clear. So it was originally be this double LP, Dream Factory. Then after like, per, you know, under the moon, <laughs> got like raked over the coals. He was like, literally, F it, I'm making a triple album because that's how good I am. I'm not over the hill. I'm not done yet. I'm, <laughs> I'm not owned. I'm not owned. Because he quietly <laughs> turned into a corn cop. Prince didn't turn into a corn cop, thankfully. But so he's like, I'm going to do a triple album. You know, I'm not beat yet. And then Warner's said, no, no, that is a little bit too megalomaniacal. Yeah, yeah. Even for you, it will be a double album. They didn't make you say, they didn't say to him, no, it has to be a single record. They said, no, no. Why don't we just go scale it back to your original ambition, my friend? Double album. But that double album, Sign of the Times, ended up just becoming so much different than this original yeah. Dream Factory thing, which is much more soul and funk based. But in a, gosh, and just there are songs here like the title track, "This Is What It's Like yeah. in the Dream Factory." Oh yeah, just big up tempo for party funk that didn't get heard until like what, 1996. Mm -hmm. That could have defined Prince's sound to like. The masses, the masses in like frat houses and parties for decades, and no one ever heard it. Total shared songs, some you know re rearranged. There are two songs that I think are better here than they are on Sign of the Times, and I think they're two of his best songs. One is one I know Jeff loves, which is Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Those horns, man, real horns. That's the difference. And I think it I really think it changes the whole feel of that song. The the, the horns that are on here, it transforms that song into something better. And that's the version that's here. <laughs> Made me laugh. I felt much better, so I went 
The other one I think is better here is Strange Relationship, which I, uh, probably is going to be on my list of five songs at the end of the show. It the is, cure outtakes. It is, it's yeah. from the head on the door, 1985. It's very, very good on Sound of the Times, but it's better here. It's better With all here. The little sitars and like, yeah. Exotic instrumentation, uh, that lengthy kind of jammy play out. I think it's better here on Dream Factory. And of course, what you have here in places too is the continued uh, work and inspiration and help of, of Lisa and Wendy because they still have their songs that end up creeping on to this Dream Factory set list. You've got a song like uh, A Place in uh, Heaven, which is just this very delicate harpsichord piano piece. Uh, you want a place in heaven, baby, you're already there. It's that, that gentleness that they bring that really makes that sort of song. All My Dreams, which I think is the final song on this Dream Factory set list. Again, it's this lengthy, long-form, epic pop that we mentioned on the last episode. Prince has this wonderful attribute that he knows how to take a song and make it interesting for the length of of the track and this is what seven and a half minutes or so despite not varying the beat and that's right that's that's the fascinating thing he's he's anchored to those beats because he does it on his own and then he can still pull it off we'll travel tonight That ends this Dream Factory set list on a, on a high note, too. Uh, there are things that are not quite as essential here, like uh, uh, Lost Heart, Last Heart. Last Heart, I, I think, is it's nice. I it's, like that. It's not essential. Um, and then, of course, you have songs that, that are in both places. We'll talk at Sign of the Times, but like It is on here, yeah, and Slow Love is on here, and they're great, great songs, too. But by and large, the main difference is I think there are a few tracks where I think it's, they're, they're just arranged a bit better. And then you have those tracks that really f- show you the influence and the input that Wendy and Lisa still were having on his songwriting during the Dream Factory era before you get to Sign of the Times. Movie Star, for example, is this thing that you could just find thrown away on Crystal Ball. But it's just it's the thing where it's just like, you know, his life is a celebrity. Do, by the way, Crystal do, Ball is, is, is the outtakes. We'll, ta- we'll talk about, we'll talk okay, about good, it in right, part right. three. There's, I'd say there's two crystal balls. There's a crystal ball as a concept yeah. for the triple album, and then there's the crystal ball that comes out much later. It's confusing. Indeed, yeah, it is confusing. So, right. but 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 so there's a song called "Movie Star" on Dream Factory, that you know where he's talking about like I'm going out and I'm having fun, and he has this little the dialogue again. You, you think of Prince as being this weird kind of like bizarre sex god, and it's nice to hear him normal and funny. Let's see, body oil, check, incense, check, environmental records, double check. I'm gonna get some serious draws tonight, think I ain't? Let's see, if I tell Gilbert Rome to meet me at 11 and I creep at 10, that'll give me an hour free reign. Mo draws, mo draws. Not that getting dressed, I had a couple sips of wine. Boom, I swear to God, my suit was hanging fine. Everybody at the club, feet. When I stepped from a limousine, they said, ooh, it's good to see you. I said, oh, it's good to be seen, you know what I mean? I'll tell you what's good, it's a good thing we live close, because I almost suffocated in that car. 
Next time I won't wear so much Paco Rabini or whatever that's the I wonder if they got potato chips up in this room. Man, this ain't like them house parties we used to go to. That's all right. I'm clean. Tonight. And then the last one I want to mention is Train. Yeah. Because I think yeah. Train is possibly the greatest Prince outtake of all time. He gave this song away to Mavis Staples of the Staples Singer, the matriarch of the Staples Singer, uh, a couple years later. And it's sure version of it is excellent because how could it not be? But his version of it is titanic. This is not a minor song. This is an outtake. You've never. It's on the, like the nine CD bonus edition of Sign of the Times now, which makes it as irrelevant as like you know a, a piece of dirt on my shoe to most people but it should be one of his major songs and no one knows about it it begins with this boom 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 ominous gospel stomp and then it just develops when all these backing vocals come in you get this gospel chorus at the big big climax this is Prince at his greatest, working within those, those, those rhythmic limitations that I discussed before, but coming up with something that is transcended, never released. It would have fit in great on Sign of the Times. Why did he not put it there? I don't know. It found a nice home with Mavis, but man, Prince's original is the one to hear. Come on, man, get your bag. You got to go. Hey girl, goodbye. Let's get out of here. Woo! set it up for us he finally is told i gotta release an album and it's gonna be a double album a statement of intent what he ends up releasing is something that does end up sounding much more kind of like an exile on main street sort of diverse statement of intent here are all these different styles that i can play it's also by most people's reckoning the greatest prince album of all time and one of the greatest albums ever released for that matter so jeff can i throw you a slight curveball i think it's actually prince's tattoo you Oh no! You mean like his outtakes? He's collecting I'm all saying the it's stuff like, from the vaults. Like, Tattoo you is a, I think it's a great record. I think Sign of the Times is an even greater record. I'm not trying to compare them in terms of like they're they're as good as one another. I but don't Tat- think Tattoo you is that great. All right, but Tattoo you is comprised of all of these like bits and pieces from these earlier sessions in the eight previous years, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's like Sign of the Times in a weird way is like he's taking from all these other projects and kind of putting together this beautiful kaleidoscope collage. I find- 
an album that has right you have a little bit of the Wendy and Lisa's left very little then you have like all of the stuff he'd been experimenting with throughout 1985 1986 1987 you have an album that I actually you know this is like criticizing Cindy Crawford who, whose prince would write a song about later on it's like you know what you know that dimple on her cheek I don't like that <laughs> like you know like yeah. you know I'm you know I'll give her a seven out of ten. I don't like that little beauty mark. Like, how are you going to criticize Sign of the Times, right? I could level a few, and I probably will. But I'll start by saying that thematically it is so scattered and diffuse because of the way it came together. You had all these different projects that were, you know, scuttled, didn't come to fruition. We haven't even mentioned Camille. <laughs> yeah, there was a point throughout this whole period where Prince suddenly discovered the joys of pitch shifting, tune shifting. Yeah, where he could take, you know, his voice and go like, you know, and that's why you, you first heard it on Erotic City, you know. Funk so pretty, you and me, erotic city, that thing. And then he's like, all of a sudden, he's like, I'm going to develop an alter ego. It's going to be my my female prince. Her name is Camille. And so he started recording tons of songs. Many of them will find their way onto Sign of the Times. Some of them find their way onto B-Sides. Apparently, Prince's estate has now just okayed a release of it. So we'll, we'll, it'll be coming out later on this year. But we, like he, we, we will know all the songs on it by this point. I think. Yes, but we all know yeah. all the songs. But the point yeah. I'm making is you've got like these four different projects boiled down to their essences, thrown into a pot with a little bit of broth called You Got to Look, like the last song you recorded for, here's another number one single, buddy. And then you get Sign of the Times. It's a little bit diffuse. But, like, can I individually criticize a single song on this record? Well, I don't like a door. Uh, That's okay. it. <laughs> I don't have any other problems with it. I think it's otherwise a great record. Let's make it start with this 
how do you tackle a how do you deal with a monster like sign of the times i listen to it a whole bunch uh you have to uh to to appreciate it i i tell you i know i knew the reputation of sign of the times but again i i just never heard most of this material before i knew you got the look and uh one or two others possibly but 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 not really what I come away with from Sign of the Times is, and, and this is where uh, Jeff stole the point earlier that I was going to make either here or maybe the next album. But yes, something about Prince's music is, you know, it is so locked in because of the way that those drums are programmed. Because, it, 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 like he said, there's nothing that starts slow and, and gets faster, right? It, it is all locked into a beat, and he's got to find ways to sort of make things uh, interesting to, to sort of sh- to shove things around to, 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 to make something different because that, that rhythm beat's going to stay essentially the same through the whole track. And when I hear Sign of the Times, I, I hear an artist that's getting a little more insular. And, you know, the way that I think Eli was describing how he, you know, for this frenzy in, in, in the middle of the night puts this album together, that, that sort of makes sense. To me, it does sound like Prince being himself and, and, and sort of only only putting these songs through his filter right in that way it's a very tight focused record in terms of the music the statement he wants to make even though musically it is all over the map um and boy there are so many great songs on this record uh the the first one i mentioned you know the the dream factory starts out with visions this very light dreamy sort of thing and it's not the case with sign of the times uh, which has this very staccato beat and this rubbery bass, and it's a Marvin Gaye-esque sort of state of the nation. Here's what's happening in the world today. Uh, Prince sort of with his ear to the to the street, and you begin to hear in places on Sound of the Times and more uh, with what we'll talk about next, him incorporating the the songs of or the the sounds, I should say, of the of this time into his music. So, so, a little bit, you know, hip-hop is rising. You hear a little bit of the, that creep in places here on Sign of the Times. Hurricane Annie ripped the ceiling off a church and killed everyone inside. You turn on the telly and every other story is telling you somebody died. My sister killed a baby because she couldn't afford to feed it. And it was sending people to the moon. In September, my cousin tried reefer for the very first time. Now he's doing horse. It's June. That that's such a great point because you can hear him again. I, I I come back to this him reacting to the sounds and to the challenges of his era and on so many of these songs. So like he was always mysterious. He never liked to talk about his process for obvious reasons. You know, have the mystique. But if you know the recording dates of these songs, you actually hear him like listening what's in the charts. I can never take the place of your man 
big pop hit. Remember it was a song from 1979? Mm -hmm. We talked about it back on the first episode. He pulled it out of the vaults in like November of 86. Why? Because he's like, I need a pop hit. I want to have a big <laughs> pop hit. And he said, no, I'm not going to use that version. I'll just re-record it again. Then later on with You Got the Look, where he like, literally, like some woman who he was like trying to impress was like, I don't like your pop music. He's like, I could record a hit. I could record a hit that would be number one on the charts right now. And he recorded it just to see if she would say she didn't like it, even as she like said she or said she still <laughs> didn't like Prince music, even as she liked that song. So like it's hilarious to realize some of these classic songs are just him like responding to like being pricked by like you know what's going on around him and mm -hmm. saying I, I can do you better than you, I can do that, you know. He, he has he has his he has such a stubborn pride in his music. <laughs> Sorry. It is a song that's carried over from the Dream Factory. Got it, Rex. And that's one of his very best. Boy, I just a whale, a long whale. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, lyrically, it is exactly what you think it is. It's it's sex. Because everything with Prince kind of revolves well, sex around the to top. orchestra hits. Yes. Yes, to those those synth stabs. I think about it all the time. I want to do it all the time. This obsession is is overtaking his his life, right? And the just insistent drums. It's one of those songs. It, hark which... it harkens back to 1999, where like sex songs got weird and yeah. creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like he's like actually like he's he's like burning in hell because of his obsession with it. <laughs> Slow Love, um, very different, very different song. Elegant arrangement. I really like the horns. There's chimes and piano in there. The way that the uh, those notes, those words get elongated as he's delivering them lyrically, vocally. Slow Love. Uh, Starfish and Coffee is one that grew on me a lot over the course of listening to Sign of the Times, because it does have that Lisa and Wendy lightness that is not everywhere on this album and, and really wouldn't appear for a, a while in terms he of couldn't get rid of he, that song right like that song was like he, he he was on the outs with them then he didn't want to like give them that but man that song is just too good to lose it so is. it stays it's it just is. like the beautiful little hoppy piano it's a very david bowie like piano tune Cloud, tangerine, and a side on a ham. If it's that 
Strength Relationship is here. It's one of his meanest, cruelest songs, taking pleasure in treating someone bad. I don't like the winner, but I do get a kick out of doing you cold. Uh, can't stand to see you happy. More than that, I hate to see you sad. Uh, I took your love. I took your body. I took your self-respect and all set to this just wonderful piece of music. Um, and again, I, I do like it a little bit more from the Dream Factory uh, uh, settings because there's a little bit more elaborate instrumentation on that version. Um, what else? Uh, you know, you got the look. Is, is I would is be interested, Scott, if, if you didn't, Scott, if you didn't mind me prompting you. Yes, prompt me. I'd be interested in your take on "If I Was Your Girlfriend" because that's got to be, for my mind, the weirdest song on this album. You know, and weird maybe... on like six different levels. I mean, I, I'm sure Eli is going to want to talk about it. I've got my takes. I really want. I want to know how. Like, where do you interpret that? I'm going to. I'm actually going to hand it off to Eli in this way because I know he has thoughts in this way. So, um, I, I didn't think about the song too much because there's so much going on. But what I did note in my notes is that this is this is one of the songs he sings as Camille, right? So he's got yeah. this pitched vocal on it and. Eli, even of all the Camille songs, there's something about If I Was Your Girlfriend that sounds tremendously Michael Jackson to me. The inflections, <laughs> the tones. Mm. Is he intentionally singing this song in a style the way Michael Jackson would sing a song like this? Well, that's a I, you know, I hadn't thought of that. Um, I hear it. I can hear it, yeah. I mean... I, that, that. <laughs> Like the way he just opens it up, right? Yeah. I mean, if I was your girlfriend, is in some ways inventing. It's both funk and kind of like this almost sly, intimate. It it feels very much like two in the morning to me. Um, well, you know why it does? It's that 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 opening the that opening sort of dubbed deep beat. Yes. Which I don't know how he adjusts the tape to get it to sound so warped. But right there, I mean, I'm like little sound clips. There's like a string section. There's a little dialogue bit. You know, like, what's going on? This is kind of Dream Factory-esque in that way. It sounds like it's a dream. Mm. And then all of a sudden, that almost sort of signals to you that, okay, I, I'm in an unreal place here. So it's if I was your girlfriend. And that, I, that that's how I enter the world of this weird-ass song.
remember You tell me all the things you forgot when I was your man Hey, hey, when I was your man If I was your best friend, would you let me take care of you And do all the things that only a best friend can And, he, and the other thing is, is that, you know, he released this as a single. Good for him. Um, you know, it's, that's 1987. And he tanked, he tanked the album a bit by doing it. That's yeah. what that people talk about. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, there's nothing against Michael Jackson, who I have great reverence for. But, you know, Michael Jackson would never have the balls to do something this experimental and risk-taking. Um, but you're right. There is, a, there is a little bit of that kind of, he does borrow some of that, Michael Jackson style, although I have come to associate Camille and certain tricks of Camille. It's so Prince to me. I mean, the other great Camille track on this is Housequake, which is another, uh, it's like an update and a tribute to James Brown again. But I want to talk about, uh, you know, some of my favorite songs of all time ever. Uh, let's start with The Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Uh, well, this is, yeah, you know what? All right. You know what? I, I I, I love it because I don't even need to add anything when you're both done. I'll just keep chiming in. This is one of my favorite <laughs> Prince songs of all time as well. Uh, me too. Uh, it's so great. I love the story of this, which is, you notice it, if you listen to it, it sounds like it's underwater. Well, that's because when they were recording it, there was a blackout and the recording machine slowed down to half speed. When Prince heard the playback, he loved it and decided to keep it, which is another kind of thing about like Prince's genius is that even when it doesn't go exactly right, when he hears something, he knows it's good, like the Maserati, you know, version of, of Kiss. He's like, yeah, that's it. He, he's, his ears are that great. Um, I, a, an interesting note about this is that, uh, A, we get the first of many Joni Mitchell Easter eggs. He, he references the song. Um, Hail me, I think I'm falling. Yes. And sort of sings it as if it's the radio. And uh, like he's singing and then he's got like some just dialogue. Like, let me get a fruit cocktail. Like it's so it's it. I you there's well, nothing. But, it, but the thing is, it seems like it's a driftless song. Yeah. For the longest time, it seems like, OK, where are the verses ending and starting? Where is are there a chorus? And, and, and you feel unmoored. Because of that, that that weird dubby beat to it, a, and then all of us, you were gonna say, Scott. I just gonna say that's a really good point. And I, I have it in my notes somewhere. The way that Prince lyrics scan and the way that they're written, there are lots of songs. Where there's nothing resembling a chorus. It's right. just it's, it's like just sentences a, end halfway through yeah. in a line, right? And there's right. other things are being chipped in and taken out, and and like he's moving the story as he moves the verses to different places, and, and then it can be very. That, it's just it's very like, unsettling. The whole thing bobs like waves along the sea, like a buoy bobbing along the sea. And then all of a sudden it swings into that middle eight. I took another bubble bath with my clothes on. And all of a sudden, like the melody clicks. You, you're like, okay, there's a hook. And, and, and then it's like the sun coming out. And then you're, oh, the picture comes into focus and into resolution. And all of a sudden you understood why it was wandering along these paths before it hit that line. That's why Dorothy Parker is actually, I think, one of his, well, simultaneously, one of his more avant-garde songs, like right up there with, like, Something in the Water Does Not Compute. Yeah. But also one of his most successful songs of all time. Yeah, it's it's just totally brilliant. Andre Simone, when he heard this on the one of those Crystal Ball listening sessions, uh, said it was the 
it was uh you know the best thing he'd ever heard uh i mean and when i first heard it i, th I couldn't believe it was like it, it's you, it's not just like nothing else sounded like that in 1987 no one's ever really made anything like that it's just this is pure prince music well because it happened by accident and that's yeah. that's the lovely thing i mean like you got the look where like he, he literally said like i'm doing this by act i'm doing this because i'm pissed that like yo you don't like my music so we like oh and sheena easton just happened to be like hanging out with him at the time he'd been you know like helpful to her in the past i'm sure he was like trying to get you know get her in bed no sheena. no sure. yeah sheena easton who wouldn't who would want to sleep with her right oh but yeah yeah and then she's you got the look and it's just like yeah two, two great pop sounds that this time did just go even better together you want I just to say, yeah, it's, it's, it's the thing about the Ballad of Dorothy Parker is, uh, and I'll like leave it to, to Neil Carlin again. I really recommend his biography. He was not just a journalist, but he was a, he was a real friend of Prince who had a, access to his private moments and actually like knew him originally as a kid in Minneapolis. And what he's Neil Carlin got him a copy of the portable Dorothy Parker bef in the time period when he he writes this. Prince has said it has nothing to do with the the author Dorothy Parker Neil Carlin says read Big Blonde and you'll see the similarities and this is a, I just want to quote Neil Carlin here because I think it's it's a great way kind of in, summing up Prince he says just as one would be given reason to suspect that Prince suffered from savant syndrome and was cognitively impaired he would come out with a line from Big Blonde arguably Dorothy Parker's best short story or somebody might be of the correct opinion that Prince had just read the front page of the New York of the day's New York Times and he would then say something so ignorant about the Illuminati running the universe that the best one could do was simply shake their head. And I just think that that sums up Prince because he does say and write things that are totally off the wall and bananas and conspiracy theory nonsense. And then he's also an incredibly literate person who is absorbing literature and art from all different kinds of places and incorporated into his own art. Um, and, I, and I love that, that insight, which is that he was capable of believing theories about the Illuminati and stuff like that, and also, you know, having appreciation for great literature. Um, so that's Dorothy Parker. I think, Jeff, we both, we all, I think all three of us agree that that's a great one. Um, there are a few others I wanted to talk to, cognizant of the time. I would just say that The Cross is the greatest Christian rock song that has ever been made. And I'm not just saying this because I'm not a huge fan of U2, but I feel like this is one of those examples of like, let me do a U2 song better than U2. Uh, well, that is, okay, he hadn't point. heard I still haven't found what I'm looking I for. I know, but they've been, I'm just saying, or, you know, whatever. But it's just, I just think that Prince does it better than U2. It's, he found their style and like improved it again, you know. 
the great ones deal. We all have our problems, some big, some are small. Soon all of our problems will be taken by the cross. to get to where we disagree Jeff. Uh, yeah the last two songs of this album are, are just like disappointing and here's the point before eli just burbles on in his era <laughs> yeah i mean come on you know don't wait don't waste our time telling us lies uh, the, the, the problem with sign <laughs> of the times is that the original dream factory ended in this really kind of fun upbeat impressive way scott talked about how all my dreams is a great way to close out a record it's weird it's poppy it's strange it's long it's epic Instead, the sign of the times album is the only place it lets you down. It's like, okay, you have, it's going to be a beautiful night. Well, first you have the cross. We're all agreed, cross is great. Yes, it's a fantastic song. Uh, but then you have, it's going to be a beautiful night. It's just like a fun long jam. But it's like a hundred other fun long jams Prince has done in the vaults. You trust me, I've got them all. It's okay, eh, you know. It's just like not something I would be like. You got to hear this, and it's nine minutes long. And then I actually don't like Adore. I don't friggin' like Adore for the same reasons I don't like Do Me Baby or Remember Still Waiting, you know. I mean, these sorts of sort of what I consider there's a vein that runs through Prince music of Prince Chintz. And this is a ripe vein of Chintz, you know. I hear the I hear I, I hear the cheese. It's it, it's Wisconsin cheese. I didn't I don't know if they do cheese in Minneapolis, but maybe they do. Maybe that's where he gets it from. Because I do not like that song. And listen, you know, don't tire yourself out defending it, Eli. I know you like uh-huh. it, but you're wrong. Oh, Oh, Jeff, the slander. I don't know where Don't go over the top. All right. Okay, so a little bit of backstory in Adore. Originally, this was going to be for the song Crucial, which is almost as great as Adore. It's way better. Far better song. Okay. I love both of these songs. Uh, I'm a little upset at Mo Austin and Warner Brothers. Why couldn't I have gotten Adore and Crucial and a few of these other things on the same album in, in 87 instead of having to wait till the... You know the the crystal ball release of like 98 or whenever but all right but let's go to adore um everything jeff said is wrong i understand that there are sometimes there is kind of prince chintz and it's also true that prince has at this point you could say a slow jam archetype starts with doomy baby we talked about in the first episode um but adore is the best love song that has ever been written it is what uh, no. Utterly majestic. No, I mean everything it, about listen, it is I mean, I genius. Bad, but come on, and I cannot believe that you do not appreciate what is maybe Prince's finest piece of work. Oh my God. Oh, 
very few bad songs. I would love to know what Scott thinks. Scott, break yeah, the tie. That'll do. break the tie. Break the tie. You know, I'm. Hang on. Remember though that you're my, my co-host. I got to work with Jeff every. <laughs> you don't have. To. Every other week, I don't have a lot of notes on a door. I can't break the tie. I literally, I cannot break the tie. I'm sorry. Ah, uh, darn! Sorry. You said the noob doesn't have the strong. You know, it's not great. Hey, listen, you know, Eli, I, I have to say that we've talked enough about Sign of the Times, but we haven't actually talked about Sign of the Times. Okay, can I just, just say one quick thing about uh, Beautiful Night? Oh, yes, of course. Because I love that one, too. All right. Um. It's a jam. It's a nice, fun jam. They can play well live. It's taken from a live performance, I believe, out on the parade. And then he yeah. adds all these other elements, and Sheila yeah. E. recites the great Edgar Lear poem, The Table of the Chair, is like in a rap form. Um, I have that one. I will concede that I have so many very precious memories of being in college and getting ready for parties and lots of fun times listening to that song. Um, so maybe that's why I love I mean, it so have, much. You, I have to say, you listen to really great like party warm-up music. There's, there's no beating Prince, but the song itself, as a song, it, 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 it's okay. I don't. It's not like worth fighting about. It's fine, but it's okay. not something like uh, it, Sign of the Times. Which, and I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna hijack this conversation all right. because I think the title track is something that we haven't discussed nearly as much as it should be discussed. This is actually, you know, people talked about Prince, you know, as far back as 1981 and controversy. Oh, you need to get political. You need to get, uh, you, know, you know, why aren't you addressing this? And then, then that's where you get like like goofy stuff like controversy, which I kind of love for its naivete. So at times is a much more serious song politically. I think it's probably the best song he ever wrote. Maybe because it doesn't attempt too much. It doesn't actually attempt to like, oh, here's a program. You know, it's not the clash. It's just saying it's reflections. I'm like, well, this is the way life is in the urban in, in urban living. And there's that those 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 horrible lines about like, you know, he, you know, he started smoking weed, you know, a month ago, and now he now he's he's doing heroin. You know, it's March or I can't remember. It's June. Um, he actually catches uh, like urban reality and grit and i think one of the reasons that it still sounds fresh even to this day is because of those weird fairlight cmi synth tones that he uses the which apparently were the presets he didn't actually like you know come up with his own patches or sounds he just like plugged it in just hit play and he's like bam i like this i'm going with it and that's how you get one of the great Sort of, I mean, timeless songs of the late 80s. Does the city know when a rocket goes And everybody still wants to fly Some say man ain't happy truly Until the man truly dies Oh, why? Oh, why? Oh, time I just interject here. I, I don't want to take anything away from Sign of the Times, the song, except I will say this, that in terms of capturing that the, the, the sort of the, the gritty reality of the inner city in 1987, that's the same year as Public Enemy's debut record. It's when rap is really coming on. Well, okay, and, there's a difference between singing metaphorically about something and throwing in a bunch uh, of no, no, like, I, it's not know. an argument. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying that 
this is in some ways it's Prince attempting in his own Prince-like way to do what the public enemy, you know, Chuck D used to say, we're black people, CNN. That is sort of like what Sign of Times is trying to do, but because, and we'll get into this in the next discussion of uh, the next album, because Prince is so unready for hip hop and doesn't know what to do with it, that I take, it's, again, I'm not taking anything away from the song because I agree with you, it is a great song and it's brilliantly put together. But in a weird way, it sounds like the end of something as opposed to um, the kind of future sense that you got when listening to like 1999 or some of those, uh, or Purple Rain for that matter. Does that, you follow what I'm saying? Is that it, it's, it's, it's like the end of an era of music as opposed to paving the way for the next stuff. Right. I, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, now, I got a question for Scott. Do you have any final thoughts on this whole giant and weird double album before I, I, I try to like you know offer a little button on it and move on? I don't think so. I think we've hit everything that I had written. I'm trying to think. You know, we didn't really talk about I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, which is a great song. And by the way, there's another one, a great example of Eli talking about how Prince is a dog in his lyrics. That song's so upbeat and poppy and cheerful that people don't realize it. He's literally saying to this woman, "Is like, you know, you know, I met her in a club and she seemed so needy and she came on to me. And then I realized, oh, wait, 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 wait you got a baby and another one on the way. Your man left you. And then what's that chorus? Baby, don't waste your time. I know it's on your mind. And I, you know, I'm looking for a one night stand, but I could never take the place of your man. Wow. He's just actually in a very cheerful, upbeat, poppy way saying, yeah, yeah I'd like to have sex, but I'm not going to take care of your kids. Yeek. sent it to num you know number 10 i believe or something like that it's a fantastic song in any era um but it's also worth pointing out that the sign of the times despite being a universal critic favorite i think chris gal said it, it it topped the passing job poll the, the village voice passing job poll at number one uh in, in a landslide that they'd never seen in any prior year as long as he had been there it was that well critically hailed it didn't sell it sold even less yes. than parade that was the final note yeah it, it sold less than parade which of course sold less than what came before and way less than purple Rain. so again we're talking about a graph and prince pays attention to his reviews and his press clippings and his sales so he's pissed about this and i don't think 
I think this is the era where he starts acting up and acting out and trying to figure out how we can balance all the very competing instincts that he has for his art, for his ego, for his music. Okay. And the first thing he does in reaction is he tours Sign of the Times, but he only tours Europe. He's angry at America. He just says, I'm not touring America. I don't know if he was, but it feels like he was. An album this great, he denies it to the American critics. And then instead, what does he do? He goes back and he's about to release an album of what he says back to basics, funk, jams, grooves, um, uh, called has no name actually it was informally called the black album because that was the cover that prince submitted for it and this is like you know this is like let's work style prince although updated for the modern era literally i think three days before it is said to be shipped to stores he trips ecstasy with some you know local minneapolis poet has a vision telling him (laughs) that it's bad bad juju it's anti-christian it's dark music you've got to pull it that's the story, at least, and I think that's partially true. But literally, he goes to Warner Brothers, and they, okay, he'd already had the fight with him about Sign of the Times. And now after this, critically reviewed, didn't sell as well, he has them print up this new album and says, pull it off. I'm going to literally buy it all back from you. I will pay for you to destroy every single copy of the record. He eats the whole thing, and it never gets released. Of course, a couple copies have already been pre-shipped for review, and Finally, Warner's releases the Black Album later in 1994. But this is as close as one of these Lost Prince projects has ever come to actually being released. What do you guys think of this weird kind of abortive dead end that was the Black Album? among the friends of Prince um, because the uh, FOP, yes. yes Return order of, of Prince. I, I will bring up that you know, Questlove thinks it's his fourth greatest album and Questlove, the drummer of the roots and you know, one, of the mo- one of the leading Princeologists. Um, he rates it higher than Dirty Mind. I do not understand that for the life of me, but okay. There's a, so there, there are people who are serious. Uh, He's a drummer. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, I think he, that's he likes it. the grooves. That's what it is. But yeah, there's no I mean, other justifiable way to do that. I mean, like you know, so there are, there are people who take this really seriously and think it's an amazing record. Um, it's I don't think it's a bad record. I still think it's like Prince is still hitting like on all cylinders, you know. So and just a couple notes on it. It was originally a lot of the songs were were uh, sort of uh, recorded just for Sheila E's birthday party at the end of '87. 
imagine how cool that would be like you know she <laughs> by the way is a great musician in her own right but like hey prince like wrote a, a you know kind of recorded an album just for my birthday that's kind of great um and i do think that there's some really good funk on it i want to focus on the track dead on it now this is prince coming out and addressing the elephant in the room, which is hip hop at this point, 87. And I think conquering it. I think, you know, you know Prince really kind of masters the form. Of these <laughs> oh, you're joking. Years. Okay. And basically it gives you kind of what I call the Seinfeld esque baseline. Um, <laughs> and then does some pretty terrible rapping. Uh, the rapper's problem usually tends from being tone deaf, pack the house and try to sing, and there will be no one left. Okay, we get it. Now the rapper, the rapper's problem actually also tends to be having a high pitched voice, which yeah. unfortunately Prince, despite his manifold talents, has, and he will never be a convincing rapper. Yeah. So, but this is, I think, it's significant because for for a few reasons, this is not Prince's view of rap is actually very much in keeping with the. Uh, with artists and R&B artists in particular of his generation, there was the famous sort of radio wars where R&B stations would play no rap music during the day. That was like a big thing in the 80s. Um, there was, you know, Barry Gordy famously said that if hip hop was around when he started Motown, he would have been the star because anybody can do it. Uh, you don't need any talent to rap. And that was Prince's view. He did not think that, that lyricism, at least rap, was any kind of talent. He thought that anyone could do it. And that explains why he entrusted rapping in the new power generation, which we'll get to later, <laughs> to the horrendous Tony M, a former dancer, who he would constantly at the time like praise, like, oh, I think he's got the finest pen in America today. Well, that's like, the thing, because lyrics were never, ever Prince's strong suit either. Yeah. It's, and so it's, it's right. natural that he would not appreciate the importance of good lyrics in, like, rap either. Right, so, which is yeah. the whole thing. And I, I, mean, I'm a, I love rap, so... So and this and this is also like all these great artists are breaking in 87, 88, which is when the Black Album comes out, Eric B and Rakim, EPMD, Big Daddy Kane, uh, LL Cool J was a little bit before, but it's really coming into his own. And of course, KRS One. Um, and he and today everybody recognizes them as the great pioneers of hip hop and the modern sound. Prince totally sees them as these interlopers and he resents them. And it's obvious on this record, and dead on it is his way of saying. I don't respect you at all. And listen, I kind of get it. He knows how to play like 50 instruments. And he looks at these guys and said, you guys don't even know how to sing. What is this? I've got so much, I've got more talent in my little finger than you have in your old body, all this other stuff. Okay, fine. See the rapper's problem usually stem from being tone deaf. Pack the house and try to sing. There won't be no one left. On it. He had to do it all himself. I can only imagine the frustrations he might have felt. You know, as he biffed a take where he's playing an 11 minute long drum track. Right. He's like, oh, <laughs> you know, he gets eight minutes in, right? And he screws it up and he's like, damn it, I have to now do an edit. Like, think about all the hours. <laughs> He wasted because he had to do it by himself. And now these kids can do it by themselves and they don't even have to learn an instrument. I'd be pissed too. 
I mean, it's it's the old man yelling at clouds part of Prince's music. Yes, or I think as I say, right, he's the he's the guy at the barbershop who's like, public enemy couldn't sing these hooks. Like, you know, like, okay, we get it. <laughs> um, now, I just want one more point on this is uh, Bob George. Oof, uh, that's, a, that's a tough listen. It's a tough listen, but at the same time, it's kind of the backstory is funny because it's a mashup of Bob Cavallo, one of his managers, and the great critic Nelson George. This is the thing, and you kind of get into the theme that you talked about before, Jeff. Um, Prince read all of his press. Nelson George was one of the first critics to recognize the genius of Prince. He was a huge Prince supporter, yeah. but wrote one review of a concert where he admitted the obvious, which is that the time was better than the revolution in terms of the stow, which was true, and Prince would later admit. And so he was—he never let it go. And Bob George is sort of like okay, his, but let's exp yeah. let's not get too specific and explicit yeah. here. What is this song about? It's a horrible, horrible sentiment. It's just like this psychopathically jealous lover that freaking ends with gunshots. It's yeah, just, it's just like bizarre, grim. I mean, I guess it's almost fascinating as a psychological. It's Freudian, you know. Yeah. It's, a, it's a portrait of like repressed resentments, barely repressed resentments at at that. But like, yeah, I think that might have been the the song he was thinking of when he was like, uh, uh, this album can't. Uh, I, I think we're gonna keep this one in the vaults. Who bought you that diamond ring? Yeah, right. Just when you have a job, you see that rich motherfucker looking. What's his name? Bob. Bob. Ain't that a bitch? What they do for a living? Manage rock stars. Who? Prince. Ain't that a bitch? Let's get him off of the hard voice. Please. Who do I look like, baby? Yesterday's fool. Don't you know I will kill you now? I mean, I, I'll say this about the Black Album. I actually find it fun. It's a fun party record until you start listening a little bit too carefully. It to is. Some of the it's fun at times, and you can kind of draw a yeah. line from some of the things on the Black Album to, I think, I think the Batman record, actually. Um, yeah. And, you know, just very briefly, I don't have a ton to say about the album in general. I think yeah, it's, I, it's, yeah. it's not a lost masterpiece by any stretch. There, there are some nice moments. Uh you know, Cindy C, where Prince takes the piss out of himself by telling a story about dancing with Cindy Crawford, and Cindy Crawford didn't know who, who he was, which seems really odd. I, and if you didn't know who Prince was, you would have been really mystified at this incredibly tiny man, like, kind of freaking on you. Yes. Like, who, like I'm a supermodel. Like, who, who are you? Why, I, you know, yeah, that would have been a hilarious thing to witness. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's very, it's very raw. It's very beat-heavy. Some of this would, a, would carry on to fun group, future yeah. albums. But, but, yeah, I mean... It's fun at times. It feels a little labored at times. It feels like he is really trying to, to win back an audience that perhaps either left him or, or have found other artists in the preceding years since, since like, Purple Rain. So it, you get that feel at times. And I don't think, like, I don't think there's a single on here anywhere. I don't think it would have no. sold. I don't think it would have, you know, brought him out of his, his sales doldrums by any stretch of the imagination. I actually think that... Um... <laughs> He was trying to pursue an audience that wasn't going to fit comfortably right. uh, with the music that yeah. he was making at that yeah. point. He was an album artist. He was kind of pursuing, you know, like it, it wasn't even at his earliest time. Like when could you say Prince was just doing straight up good time grooves? For you, maybe Prince, those first two records. By the time of Dirty Mind, he's off on a strange trip. It was he cultivated. Well, yeah, there's good time grooves on all of those on records. All of those records, right. 1999, most of all. But that one was where it's. It's leavened with like the true oddity, but 
you know, he continues to fight this weird battle with his next album. And Love Sexy oh, yeah. is the point where his confrontation with the commercial world, his record label commercial expectations, everyone thinks it comes later. This is where it really explodes. ball down his time at the time. And he was like, all right, fine. All right. And then he does this blackout, man. He tells the label they have to eat it. No. You have to just immediately, you're about to release it. You're about to promote it. No, suck it up. I'll buy it. I'll pay for it. But no, you can't. You'd count it on a big Prince promotional to sell records. No such luck. Okay. Here's my new record, Love Sexy. I took an acid trip or an ecstasy trip. And now I believe in the power of, of sex to conquer all, which is really not much different than I ever believed, by the way. Um, and here's my new record. It's full of wonderful pop tunes. Here's 10 of them. Oh, it's all got to be tracked as one damn <laughs> song. Mm-hmm. No track listing. You have the tracks. It's you know a 44-minute, one song track that was on CD. You bought it. If you bought it on record, it was just side one, side two. Uh, a lot of people thought, oh, that's ballsy of Prince. I actually think this is his most arrogant and condescending move he ever made, his biggest misstep. Because it insults the intelligence of his audience. All right. If I'm in for Prince, I'm already up for like, you know, I'll listen to any of his weird stuff. I don't need to be told that I have to listen to the whole thing all at once. I, I don't. I will make the time to do it. It was a very control freak move on his part. And that's what it evinces. It evinces that insecurity, that, that need to make people listen to the music. And that's, I think, unfortunate because Love Sexy is a great record that yeah. no one talks about anymore. No one thinks about it as like the one hit that's on the greatest hits record, Alphabet Street, which is not the best song on the record by any means. Uh, and then all the stuff, it's just like, well, when you first bought it, it was just a brick, a brick of music. You couldn't separate out the songs. And now, you know, people don't talk about Prince anymore. So Love Sexy, he sabotaged himself, and it would not be the last time. <laughs>
And he, sab- he sabotaged a pretty good group of songs here. Um, certainly there's far more commercial possibility here than there would have been with uh, the Black Album. And, you know, Alphabet Street was the single. It's on the Greatest Hits uh, release. And it's a pretty good slamming, thumping, funky, strummy song. I mean, it, it does the job. It's fun to watch him in the video doing, like, literally doing James Brown moves with the microphone in the Alphabet Street video. Um, and in the background it says, don't buy, don't the, buy Black the Black Album. Album. I'm sorry. Yes, yes. <laughs> This is why I'll never do ecstasy, by the way, because, you know, I'll come on to the next episode of Political Beats unrecognizable. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Genesis, they, they were too theatrical. I, I just, I, I, I can't say anything good about them anymore. I'm trying to think of a progressive rock band that truly embodies the concept of love. And the answer <laughs> is Emerson Lake and Paul. Anesthesia, uh, which is, oh, yeah. uh, is broken into two words, like a, like a person's name, Anesthesia. That's probably my favorite song on the record. Um, it sets up this sort of dreamy, foreboding audioscape. You know, lyrically and even musically, you really feel sort of the, the isolation, the numbness, um, the loneliness. Um, what's the line? You ever want to play with someone so much you'll take any boy or girl? Um, and, and there's discussion in here about liberate my mind, uh, getting closer to God. I, I could learn to love the right way, the only way. Built off this simple, you know, keyboard figure. It sort of is this what five minute path to redemption by the end. And I love the way it thumps out at the end, like like a heartbeat ceasing to beat. Uh, um, yeah. Man, that that is just a really wonderful track. The last one here, uh, Positivity, is a great song, too. Um, there's this 
thing. That to me is actually like a, feels like a good throwback to like the controversy area. Yeah. Maybe yeah. because it's like sexuality, you know, and con- I don't know why. I, but yeah, I, I love that song. Yeah. He talks about, you know, spooky electric, which is a stand in for Satan or the devil here. Don't don't kiss the beast is one of the yes. lyrics. He on contended during this era that the Black Album was actually, you know, uh, directed by the apparition called Spooky Electric. Uh-huh. Spooky like the devil made him do it. In other words, yeah. Prince was in a weird space. Positivity, Sorry. yeah, positivity. Talking about have you had your plus sign today, which could mean you know positivity, could mean the cross. Uh, going back to a previous song, you know, um, stay you know stay on the good path, stay on the right path is what positivity is trying to talk about. It's difficult times, especially for Prince, I would imagine. <laughs> Out of school at 13 years of age. Answer the cue of life and death when it slaps him in the face. Who's to blame when he's got no place to go? And all he's got is a sense to know that a life of crime will help him beat you in the race. I'll help him beat you in the race. Dance on has this. I, I just wrote down, you know, very fast funk bass. I mean, it's kind of like what Flea might play on a Red Hot Chili Peppers track, but this very sunny chorus. It's fun to hear Prince cackling in the middle of a song like Dance On. There's a Dance there's a, On I like also because you saw some of those rhythm problems that we've talked about. That drum programming yeah, on that song. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's live drums or programming. That's an amazing beat. Don't and, you think though he should be paying some royalties to Jelly Bean? Yeah, well, hey, you know what? They steal from each other back yeah, and do, forth right? and back and forth. Yeah, I, just, yeah. I mean, I just felt like I was like, oh, this this he, this is this is my this is my my jam. This is my my vintage time rhythm section. I yeah. love it. And I guess we should mention just very briefly that he also sort of shot himself in the foot with the cover, which is Prince nude, uh, not fully oh. nude, but you know, tastefully <laughs> covered. And I'll just mention now. I'm sure it'll come up in the next episode too. I, I cannot think, guys, of a major artist that has worse album covers than Prince throughout his career. There are some that, few that are okay, but most of these album covers are really atrocious. And Love Sexy With Scott is bad. and I were planning, you know, like you know, we did a little album covers thing for National Review last time. I said, you know, what, what the cover should be this time is just a zoomed in, focused in shot of Prince's crotch in a cod piece from Dirty Mind. And I, think, I think this time it should just be a side, a really zoomed in side of Prince's left thigh from yeah. Love Sexy. <laughs> because I remember seeing that record in the stores as a very young kid i must have been 10 9 and i remember i was like mommy why is that man man i wasn't <laughs> sure because he has the long flowing hair and yet he has like it was really weird i was like why is that man naked i remember it and my mom was like don't worry about that she wasn't really prude but she was not ready to explain <laughs> prince to a 10 year old <laughs> Just 
emotions Drown each other in each other's emotions Bathe with me It's covering each other with blue emotion Bathe with me Ooh, Let me touch your body to your rivers in emotion Bathe with me Love Sexy is incredible. Um, I mean, I don't even mind the fact that it was originally one track because the music is so good. I agree with you that it's arrogant to do that, but um, and it does show kind of arrogance. But it's also a reflection of the fact that you know, if you think about it, really look at a look at you know from from Purple Rain on, he he does have very deliberate track listings. I think it really crushed him that he couldn't put out Crystal Ball the way he wanted to. Um, and so this was kind of, you know, he was making that point and it does fit together. Like, you know, it starts off with this weird, like kind of dreamy sense. Ingrid Chavez does the rain is wet and sugar is sweet. Then you get Prince welcome you, welcomes you to the new power generation. The reason why my voice is so clear is there's no smack in my brain. The horn stabs, the organ chords, the bass pops. I know, which is incredible. A he he improves upon the guts of the song was originally ball, the ball from the crystal ball sessions. Um, I know is great. Uh, I like everything on this. I think it's wall to wall bangers. I think it's his last, unless I count the truth from 1998, which will be in episode three, you know, his second to last, like kind of completely perfect record with no wrong notes. Um, I love, love sexy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I totally agree, Scott, about Anastasia. The, the the last minute and a half of it where, you know, you have the chorus singing, uh, you know, love is God and mm-hmm. God is love. Mm-hmm. The girls and boys love God above. It's amazing. I This in some ways is like, it's like Prin- Prince is like when Dylan goes into the Jesus period, but he makes <laughs> those two great records. This is so great. It's a, it is a gospel album. It's It's, the whole thing is about God. I love it. Um, I, I think it's, you know, again, I, I, I don't understand anybody who would put rank the black album over this, but in the sense that he had to sort of make the black album, pull the black album back. He has the ecstasy trip, but it does force him creatively to kind of get into this new space where he is now making evangelical funk, but it's great. And I, I love it. And it's some of the most musically daring stuff he's doing, even though he's been on this very fertile period but you listen to a song like glam slam and all the places that it goes um you included on our on our list of stuff all three uh the 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 three parts of i wish you heaven listen to the whole thing whole 10 minutes yes yeah it's it's phenomenal and then positivity i mean i think we all agree that's a that is it's a central prince right there um from I mean, the establishment of that rhythm with like these, it sounds like Chinese style, like kind of wooden blocks um, mixed in with like kind of a deeper funk. And then it, it, it he layers it and it and that groove evolves just to the point where he's singing at the end and all you get is the, the, the percussion. Um, I, I, I just it's a it's a stunning work of genius. If he had just sequenced the CD and given us one through nine instead of one single track, yeah. I do think he would have had 
another, you know, multi-platinum record because there are lots of hits on this. Okay, I want to really, really hammer on that point. Eli. Yeah, I want to emphasize that that it, it is an artifact of history and, frankly, Prince's bullheadedness. That we like this imperial period that like Prince fans and music critics talk about that runs from 1999 and ends with Sign of the Times. You would not end it there. You'd ended it love sexy had he not insisted on releasing yes. it as one conjoint album. Honestly, think this that that it is a point of entry that is so great psychologically for people because mm-hmm. they don't have the patience and time to sit down for 44 minutes. Sure. But they didn't, at least at that time, and now they don't have to. But it's too late now. Uh, that they don't group it with the rest, and they don't group it with the rest because, of course, again, it didn't sell as well as Sign of the Times. What did you expect, Prince? What did you expect? You know, you release a song. There's a couple of singles. They're good singles, but then you go to the album, and I can't cue up that single I wanted to hear. <laughs> Weird. I dropped the needle in the middle of the vinyl. I got to, like, you know, hit the – imagine. you remember how old CD players used to work, you guys? You know, it's not like your computer or your iPhone these days. You had to put your finger – on that stupid fast-forward button and hold it down and God help you if your finger would twitch because then you wouldn't actually hold it down. You'd skip all the way forward to the next track. Oh, my God. He made it so hard on people. Although cassette era, he would have been fine. Cassette, you know, there's, there's no way. A-OK for the cassette era. Sound man, the, they, they, those are the ones that are, know how to pause when it gets silent, <laughs> that would have been perfect, right? Okay. I, there's is something we should point out, though, about about sort of in this period. It, it starts maybe before, you could argue, with the Sign of the Times tour. But at this point, uh, Prince is almost a kind of cult leader in that there is going to there. There's so many fans, particularly in Europe, not just in America, that love Prince so much that they eat this up. And it becomes like love sexy for the true friends of Prince. It's like the, his one of his great tours, absolutely. Not just one of his great tours. This is can, it's, this is a this is a like a Grail level record. It's in the pantheon. It's one because of the because it's a high barrier to entry album, and that's exactly. one reason too. Because you've really got to love print. You had to, and even now you still have to care a lot to get here. But it's it, I don't see it as in any way a drop off in terms of the quality of the songwriting and the musicianship as what we got from that. Imperial period. He's you still... know what? You know what? it might have sold more. It might have sold more, Eli, if yeah. instead of posing nude, you know, sure. on a That's divan on the cover, <laughs> he right. instead he just put the Superman logo on it instead. Superman. Okay, you know what? Can't license Superman. Shit. You know what you should do? 
How about Batman? There you go. <laughs> God, the story of Prince, the story of Prince. Oh, folks, this is just so fun. So Warner Brothers happens to own a couple of valuable properties. One of them happening to be DC and you know, you know the, the the Batman brand. They're making that Tim Burton Batman movie. You know Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton. You love it. It's great. Watch it. I watched it the other day, preparing for the show, and it's just as silly and '80s and fun as I thought it was back when I was a kid. Um, here's the funny thing. You know, Tim Burton is routining the music, you know, on set. You know, he's like, you know, thinking about blocking scenes and he wants to have background music to like the way he'll cut the shots. And he puts in Prince music. I think it was 1999 was one of the songs. I can't remember what the other one was. Uh, It was another kind of a dancey track. And of course, you know, Prince being the notoriously prickly dude that he is. And they know they got to clear this. They think it won't be too hard because it's Warner's, right? So they have legally, you know, it's just about Prince. They got to get Prince to say yes. So they they bring him in. It's like, hey, this is the film we're doing. You mind if we use some of your old tunes? Prince being Prince. What was Prince doing this time? The man was always searching for like like an outlet or something to do. And this is a really clever move. He's like, you know what? Here's my lateral play. I can hide behind the bat. I could just put out like one of these fun jammy albums that I've always been wanting to do, kind of like the Black Album, more upbeat this time. And I can just say, hey, it's the Batman soundtrack. And so instead of letting them use 1999 or whatever song it was they wanted to use, he said, hey, Tim, I got a better idea. I'm going to write you a whole new album. And the thing about this is that people dismiss the Batman album as you know very light and slight prints. This album spent six weeks at number one in the charts in 1989. This is peak record sales era for the Billboard charts. This is not like you know you spend six weeks at number one in 2022 and you're selling yeah I don't know like, <laughs> 200 albums. No, this sold millions upon millions of units throughout like a long span of time. And the song "Bat Dance" became a number one hit single. It's my least favorite Prince hit of all time. It wasn't even included on the greatest hits. <laughs> Oh, I got a live one here. is hilarious and fun and this is prince sort of like getting into the zeitgeist and what a fun and memorable way to do because guy just as the the film i think has aged well and is like a weird zany kind of a portrait of a like a, a vision in a strange place so too i think batman is one of my favorite party records you throw this one on this is not like throwing on the black album where if people listen too closely they're going to get upset this one everybody always really enjoys listening to It's hard to separate a few of the tracks from where they 
they are in the movie, right? Especially something like Party Man, which is so right. iconic in that art museum when the Joker, right, when Joker is walks facing the, the paintings. Out, right, yeah. But it works well. I can't imagine the movie using 1999, but I do think that using the new songs sort of makes them more indelible in our minds. Uh, I had mentioned earlier, I think you can hear you know, part of what he was trying on the Black Album carried over here. But the thing about it is, not only is he able to cover the fun by just saying, you know, slapping the Batman logo on it, but the, the, the darkness that is present in corners on the Black Album, no, no pun intended, it's kind of covered up here because it's it's character, right? The dark it's dark because it's the Joker. It's dark because yeah, it's... exactly. He can do like the electric chair or something like yeah. that, you know. And like it's not as weird as it would be if he was singing in his own voice. He always liked it. That's why he hid behind Camille too. Yep, I yeah. think I think the future is a great track. Leads things off a little bit, a little bit of like dirty mind type type uh, mm-hmm. rhythm to it. That relentless thump and the very eerie keys. You can't understand. I say too tough. It's just that I've seen the future, boy, it's rough. I've seen the future and it will be. I've seen the future and it works. If there's life after, we will see. So you can't go like a jerk. No, no. Uh, not to bring back Michael Jackson again, but uh, Lemon Crush uses a progression that is oh pretty close to Thriller. That dum 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 dum. It's just it's right there. I, it's very I, close. I, I, I like that song a lot. I mean, I think there's only one thing here that bores me. Why? Well, okay, no, I hate that dance because it's cheese. It's it's, it's just, barely a song. It's barely it's a song. Clips, man, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Number one for four weeks, man. Number one hit single. I heard that on the radio. I talked about it at the beginning of the show last time, right? You heard that thing on the radio. I remember like playing you know, kickball in the driveway and hearing you know, Jack Nicholson say, you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? So bad dance. And just thinking, even then, I was like, that's stupid. That's a bad song. And yet, that's the only thing on this record I don't like. The best thing on this record, though, is again, I think, Probably one of the best songs from this era. And, I mean, nobody remembers it. It's on the Batman soundtrack. But Vicky Waiting. Yes! Yes! We all agree three out of three. Yes! That is one of the greatest songs of this era. It's so good. It does... He hit it away, man. It does carry that sort of around-the-world feel, which I guess no surprise that that I like it. It has this very lush, beautiful guitar picking happening, happening... just behind the mix uh this rolling beat very funny <laughs> it's very funny why is your organ so small i was playing in a cathedral right that prince sense of humor carries through but vicky waiting man that i don't even know if it was released as a single off uh, off of the batman soundtrack they it didn't need it it sold a billion copies it was a number one had a number one song already on it but Vicky Waiting is one of the, I mean, the craft, the craftsmanship on that song is just pristine. It's a great track. All is well in Gotham City. The sound of terror is all you hear. Sometimes a pistol take the place of a body. Sometimes a body is here. She went crying is your only love. All that matters, the present. Here and now, 
I don't. Uh, I consider Batman a huge drop off. Yeah. I mean, we we just got Love Sexy. Um, I I I. But I agree about Vicky waiting. I think Vicky waiting. I is consider terrific. it a side project, and that's probably what helps. I mean, again, as okay. I said, he's hiding behind the cowl. He's hiding behind the mask. He's doing the Batman thing. It's not like. It's the way that he was doing like parade on one end, and then he was doing like you know, what Dream Factory would be on the other. He was like, you know, like I'm I'm not doing Prince here. I'm doing. Remember, there was big. The it was important that... for him on the album that he was. He made it a point to like say on the liner notes he was never quote speaking in his own voice. The only time Prince is right. saying it's, it's Prince is, the, is the last word where he says stop. Yes. So like uh, I, that's why I think if you think of it as a side project. It's much more forgivable in that respect. Okay, here's the difference between that: is that Parade and the music from uh, uh, the music from Dream Factory are great, yeah. and Batman is just <laughs> kind of mediocre. And you know, it's still Prince, so you get Vicky Vicky waiting. I mean, listen, if Prince hadn't done by this point, Do Me Baby and The Beautiful Ones and Adore and Slow Love, then I would be more impressed with Scandalous. But Scandalous is basically just a rework. I mean, I think when two are in love from both. The Black Album, the only song that's on the Black Album in Love Sexy is a better slow jam than Scandalous. But Scandalous, like, is a, is great because he's so good at those slow jams, but it's like, eh, kind of generic. That's basically how I feel about the album. It's okay. Um, I, I get, I'm always interested to sort of see where the, the, the you know, people in the Prince community rank. There's some people who, who consider it very highly. Um, you know, there's been lots of these articles of the best Prince albums and everything like that. I don't understand that. I, for me, Batman is kind of totally boring and un- uninteresting, and uh, he's about to get better in the next two records we're going to discuss. I, 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 have either of you guys seen the film Shaun of the Dead? Oh, yeah. yes, of course. Yeah. Great okay, well, so there's a, there's a great we, – we could not do this episode without talking about the great gag in Shout of the Dead where, you know, it's in England and they're fighting off zombies. And, they, they, you know, and, and they're throwing their record collection yes. at them. Yes. And they're trying to decide. This is, they're slowly shambling towards them. It's like, which records do we get yeah. rid of to throw at the zombies? We're like the one guy pulls out Purple Rain, and, and, and Simon Pegg says, no, 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 can't save that. And then he, then he pulls out Batman, and then Simon <laughs> Pegg's like, all right, go. So you know, other people feel the same way about this album. This is kind of, a, again, a wandering era for Prince. You know, talk about, I, I think of the way, I think of the, 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 the ebb and flow of Prince's history, the way I think of, like, Russian history, like, giant historical currents. So, like, you know, he has a wandering period here. You know, it starts maybe with Love Sexy, which is a great album, but he's obviously sabotaging himself, then Batman hiding behind a mask, and then what comes next is Graffiti Bridge, which is again an album that is just like this is you know these eras are dealt with like with one song on compilations it's just, yeah forget about it uh i really actually like graffiti bridge it's a strange record again a failed film a film you'll never need to see don't bother <laughs> it's not like you're getting anything cool musically that you don't already hear on the record but people forget about the record if they remember for graffiti bridge they remember it for thieves in the temple which you don't even probably know is called Thieves in the Temple. You probably think it's called Love Come Quick, because I thought it was called Love Come Quick for about years. Love Come Quick.
but it's a great little underrated Prince jam. And then the rest of this is him kind of like putting together a, a review. And I say R-E-V-U-E, uh, where he's getting all of his, some of his protégés, his friends, people he wants to, you know, help out to come together and play their songs. Of course, they're all Prince songs. And they're all actually instrumentally played by Prince. So it is another Prince album, but it's not like a real album album. It's more of a graveyard of outtakes that he'd been punting around yes. maybe for nearly as long as a decade, right? I still like Graffiti Bridge, but it's a strange record and it's hard to categorize. Older songs here, but they're good songs. I really like Graffiti Bridge. I, I, I tried not to, I mean, I know they're all Prince songs, but I tried to concentrate on the ones that are actually performed and sung by Prince as opposed to the ones from the time. Where there's hey, man, some of those songs. songs by the time are really good. They're good. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I think you on my list. list. I'll tell you don't, don't sleep on some of those. They're good. So, the, the, you know, the actual Prince songs, two of my favorites are, yeah, really old songs. Elephants and Flowers is a song yes. from like 87 right. that is brought back from Graffiti Bridge skittish beat layered backing vocals he's singing in for for prince this low almost gravelly voice that's a standout track here i like we can funk with george clinton where you see the, the p-funk sound and the minneapolis sound sort of come together i like the way that prince whispers hey, some folks, of the lines uh, no, folks no prizes for guessing what the uh title of the original outtake version of that was called. <laughs> <laughs> but that's from 83 that's from a long time ago yeah and i really like joy and repetition which is i think those three well, that's are, a are classic phenomenal. that's a great song are one of the close. one of his best yeah you have this it's just hypnotic um and 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 as much as a prince song can have a slow build it does this half-spoken, half-sung delivery, and this really wonderful snaking guitar solo. For every time she said the words, another one of his doubts were gone. Should he try to rap with her? Should he stand and stare? No one else was watching her. She didn't seem to care. So on and on, she said the words till he could take no more. Dragged her from the stage Together they ran Through the back door In the alley over by the curb He said, tell me what's your name She only said the words again And it started to rain Two words falling between the drops And the moans of his condition Growing Repetition is a great song on Graffiti Bridge. Thieves in the Temple is a good track. You know, I don't like the new Power Generation songs. They, they sound just like him taking the, the you new mean, jack you mean, swing. You mean the song New Power Generation parts one and two? Correct. Is that what you're... Yes. But it was a, it was a lot better in, again in its original version in my opinion. I don't it was like a 1999 outtake. That sounds very Bobby Brown to me. That sounds one case in which he's behind something rather than trying to get in front and, of yeah, something. And that's exactly the difference between the original and the new version. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, by and large, um, I would even say at this point, being a Prince neophyte, I like Graffiti Bridge better than I like his previous soundtrack. Uh, that you guys both adored. So I, I'm probably wrong. Parade's probably a better album, but I'm just saying right now, I'd prefer to listen to Graffiti Bridge than Parade. 
Well, I mean, it, it, it really helps that the people he brings in to sing these other songs, like you really did. I, I hope you didn't skip. I know the time is, you know, you know, we don't have all the time in the world here, but you should be listening to the time. Uh, release it. And I know Eli loves this one just That's as much my, as I do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, it's such a good funk jam. All right. And, and it's it's actually probably one of the very few songs on this record that, that Prince didn't have like full control over because the time was not really standing for that much anymore. But yeah, Joy and Repetition, Tick, Tick, Bang, goes back to like the Dirty Mind era, Controversy era. This is a really good remake of it. Um, I just, uh, yeah, it, it, it's like a little, it, it's almost like his odds and sods. You know, it's Dog's Breakfast. He doesn't admit that that's what it is. But it's just like some of these things have been tweaked and updated. Yep. And, then, you know, we brought some new vocalists in to handle some of it. But, yeah, it, it, and it's that diversity that actually kind of makes it a, a very kind of a fresh surprise in this discography. Eli. I just want to talk briefly about Release It because I love that one. Um, you know, if you listen to it, Morris Day's uh, vocals uh, are that, that Bruno Mars should be writing royalty checks to him because that is the Bruno Mars character that we see today. Um, it's hilarious. It The drumming is just, just sick. Um, I thought it was Jelly Bean. It's not. It's David Garibaldi, but uh, it's, the whole thing is brilliant. <laughs> bunch of stuff from i think graffiti bridge really stands on its own uh i would concur with everyone that join repetition is one of the great print songs that was from the crystal ball stuff um i kind of feel like it's a cousin to the ballad of dorothy parker yes Uh, and then by the way and when you had to cut it down to a double album i actually thought to myself well why did some songs lose and that's why because it sounds too much like that and he couldn't include two songs like that and that's the reason but it's so great. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't really mind the new power generation, but I see your point that it does begin to sound like he's now adopting to the new Jack swing mm-hmm. of, the, of that era. He's in weirdly adopting to, you know, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, right? Yeah. I mean, right. So they're now like a little bit more kind of, you know, the trendsetter. I think this is actually a very important by the way and i think yeah. it actually kind of governs what comes next but you finish what were you saying yeah no, no no i was just gonna say that like i i, I see that that it's like if he's you know he's no longer he, you know he's no longer the cultural leader in this in the way that he was you know only a few years ago yeah i mean it, that that idea that he is sort of lost not lost the plot all these records still sell Right. It's not like Prince disappeared like Big Star, okay? <laughs> He's still like a commercially highly successful artist. But if you had to ask, you'd say in the late 80s, and I remember I lived through it. I mean, I, we all lived through it. You know, even as a kid, I remember in, in, the, in, the, in the late 80s, like 86 to 89, even as a small child, Prince, yeah, you knew about that. And then around that little turn of the period, you, just, you didn't hear anything really anymore. 
And that's because he was sort of dipping. He had to have maybe one song a year. Got this big dominance commercially. And then he just decided again, hey, you know what? I'm going to reclaim it. <laughs> and I think Eli and I disagree somewhat about the merits of diamonds and pearls. But I consider this to be just, I don't know if you call it a comeback because I just don't think he ever left. I think he wandered. He decided all, to... the, all those who wander are not lost my friends, and he found himself again here. What were you saying? I just say it's like when he, you know, writing. You got the look. You know, you you don't like what I what I can do. I can still do this. Diamonds and pearls is him saying. Here, here okay, are five yeah. hit singles. Yeah, I can still do this. <laughs> yeah. and these are some of the best songs I've ever written. singles to put on any of my greatest hits like like they, they, they divide them up like one of them will have three of them one of them will have the other two because this is a fantastic album yes we would all love to get rid of tony m or yeah. whatever the dude's name all right, well, is. hold on jeff that was my only point in the <laughs> in the show notes was that I, if you let me edit this down and i just could take tony m off of it and on the tony m dominant track it's a five-star great record i totally agree like I mean, I take some songs, maybe a big one song off, because remember, oh, but this is the other thing that needs to be pointed out. This is the first, first album, or Graffiti Bridge actually was the first album of the CD era for Prince, and this is something I guess we do need to take note of, because it will regrettably affect things going forward. Uh, Scott and I have talked about how many times, Scott, have we talked about how these artists, these legacy artists. Every, every show featuring an artist from the early 90s. That's but particularly, particularly the ones that started out like like earlier in the 70s and the 80s. And they're like, they, they, they lose self-control. They no longer have to edit. Like Elvis Costello, we joked about how he somehow forgot how to edit himself after mm -hmm. 1987. All right, well, Prince forgot how to edit himself as well. So from Graffiti Bridge is 65 minutes. But it doesn't feel like a double album. It feels like a, it should be just like a single disc because it's a CD album. Same with Diamonds and Pearls. It's too long. I could take 20 minutes off. Most of them are rap, all right? But I could take another song off as well. This is going to be a problem that, I, you know, instead of just referring it to it with every single album, you know, just say that like, like Smashing Pumpkins or even Radiohead sometimes, every artist that wrestled with the CD <laughs> era fell short, I think, until they kind of righted the ship somewhere around 2001 or so. But I still love Diamonds and Pearls. So, Eli, tell me why you hate Tony. I mean, are we all... I think we, we all agree. Oh, I think oh, he yes. has some dope rhymes, yes. man. Oh, I mean, okay. <laughs> all right, no, no. fair enough. You're, you're, you're no, trolling no, me. Come, come on. They're, 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 <laughs> they're, cult they're, they're kind of culturally aware. They're relevant. It's what the kids are talking about these days, and they, they do rhymes. Well, hello, on a mellow, swing low to the temple as I flow on a roll. Here we go, willing and able, start the show. 
Let my cards on the table tonight. Don't take me light, my flow hits you just like a lead pipe while I'm clocking. You just ain't fast about the boots I'm knocking. It ain't like that. Besides, I keep the gym so get off my back. In fact, you lack the next step back before I show you how fool acts, baby. Well, what could you object? <laughs> oh my god! Anyway, his okay. Prince's impression of what good rap is 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 kind of funny. It, it very much harkens back to like his own attempts at doing it you on know, things as early as controversy. It's just sort of straight rhyme, like almost iambic pentameter. You know, like Shakespearean rhyme. He doesn't have the sort of the, the flow and the groove. It's strange how he just, as you pointed out already, doesn't have the feel for it. So yeah, this guy that he deputized to handle it ain't ain't that much it's because he thinks that rapping is like a child's puzzle that he can figure out because he's a musical genius and it's he doesn't give it the respect of an art form and i understand that if that's your attitude in 1983 but it's 1991 there has been great rap music that is out there there is great rap music by the way Hey, Eli, maybe he wasn't lying when he said he didn't listen to anybody's music <laughs> but his own. I guess he wasn't, but I'm saying like even like like the Digital Underground, I love the Digital Underground. Digital Underground's 1989 record, Sex Packets. The second side is largely a suite on Sex Packets. It sounds like something from Purple Rain. It's he, So he's influencing great rap, especially when it comes to the production. Prince is a, is a pioneer when it comes to everything from drum programming to how to use samples. He, he's definitely on the cutting edge. He's responsible for creating a lot of this kind of music. But when it comes to... But he doesn't like how they're using his innovations. He no, he doesn't. And he, he resents it. It's like, wait, that was mine, and you're not allowed to do what you're doing with it. So the, why then couldn't he have just said, I'm going to continue to make inc super high-quality, brilliant funk, dance, you know, pop records, and I'm not going to include rap. But he felt like he had to because he was... He had to, you know, he, he was such a restless artist. He wanted to and constantly change. That's he where the wanted... heat was. That was where the new heat was. And he was yeah. not going to settle for just doing something that was already, mm -hmm. yeah, ground that he'd already plowed. So that, so we get, we, so this is where we get Tony M, his former dancer. And I, as I say it, uh, he conned Prince into letting him rap on New Power Generation <laughs> you think of this guy. You think of this guy as like, you know, like L. Ron Hubbard. That's amazing. Yeah, it basically like I, I just it's it's this blight because I love Prince so much and this and you're right, Diamonds and Pearls is a great record. And I have this line in the email, I would like a Soviet style commissar at Spotify or Apple to go through Prince's catalog from Diamonds and Pearls to Emancipation and remove all the Tony M. Please, we have the technology, edit him out. Confession, the... Eli, I've done that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, 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 well not, not for all of them. But I have a Diamonds and Pearls edit that just removes like his stuff, and, and I actually went to, like Audacity and like individually edited the tracks, duck faded and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm OCD like that. Yeah, okay. So you get it, you get it. It's like this because this is a great album. I, I mean, it, are you gonna argue with? I mean, let's just talk. Like I've made, I've said my piece. Tony M is a, a blight on the Prince catalog. I wish it wasn't there. We have to deal with it. But okay, let's put that aside because Tony M. Tony M. is no Boney M. I don't know if no. you remember <laughs> pop group Boney M. They were great. Yeah. Um, not, actually, not so great. So, uh, yeah, you're I'll, saying. I'll that. just I'll go through like you know, and, and I'm sure everybody. But let, let's let's start with Cream because Cream was the last number one hit that Prince had. I like I love I think it's really I love it because Prince has always had a glam side. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time he's coming out and sort of 
kind of paying homage in a way um, to um, T-Rex. You can hear a little bit, of, but I mean, it sounds like bang a gong. Yes. Um, and it's, okay. so I like that, but it's just, he innovates it enough. He tinkers with it enough that it's his own track and it totally works. Do you dance? Why should you wait any longer? Take your chance. It could only make you stronger. It's your time. It's your time. You got the horn, so why don't you blow it? And then, so that's Cream. I love Strolling, Willing and Able, mm. uh, Get Off, even though it does have that Tony M in it. Uh, <laughs> it just is one of his monster dance tracks. Uh, he's mo- it, this is, I, 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 don't, I don't count this as part of the archetype of like the, the, the new Prince Funk that he creates with Dirty Mind and Head. Uh, this is something else. Uh, you, it's, it's, you can tell that, in, that he's been listening, someone's been listening to the Bomb Squad produ- production for Public yes. Enemy, because all of those elements are in there, but it mm-hmm. is nasty. And it's, uh, that's, that's one, probably one of his best party starters. Everybody grab a party, pump it like you want somebody. You want to eat I'm a toy, I don't serve ribs. You better be happy that dress is still on. I heard the rip when you sat down. Honey, them hips is gone, but that's alright, I clock them that way. Mind me of something James used to say. I like them fat, I like them proud. You gotta have a mother for me. Now move your big ass round this way so I can work on that zipper, baby. Tonight. You're a star, and I'm a big dipper. By the, um, way, by the way, Eli, while we're dunking on Tony, I might just yeah. got to tell you this. You know, like I was joking with you earlier about how I have an edit of this thing that just ducks out all of Tony M. I wasn't even kidding when it comes to Willing and Able, which I think is one of Prince's greatest songs. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a great song. I actually have, have a ver- I have a version of that. It's just like, can you please send that to me because I love Willing and Able too. And <laughs> do not need that bit. <laughs> you- I don't need the last minute of the song where I'm getting like just nursery rhymes from. Tony- <laughs> Why? It's Why? like Andrew Dice Clay level nursery. <laughs> it's terrible. It's nursery crimes, is what yeah. it is. Right. And you know, um, okay. Oh, I'm sorry, Tony. If you ever hear this, I'm sorry. Finally, I will just say this. Um, I many years ago in the 90s, I wrote an article for the now defunct Virginia Music Magazine Grip, the 69 best songs to, well, I used a, a vul- more vulgar word to copulate to. Let's just say that. And my number one was Insatiable. Um, I was obsessed with the song in college. Um, I 
agree, I totally acknowledge that this is again he's going back to uh, the formula of his. Oh, slow who cares? Jam. Let him go back to this well as often as he wants. Yeah, exactly, because he nails it. It's so good. Oh man, that that so so I just that's that's that one is pure sex. Carlin's favorite uh, Prince song, as I said, he, in my view, is his best bi- biographer. Um, uh, yeah, so you're right. Like, this is a great album. It just, I, please, get rid of Daddy Pop. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jughead, we have no need for that. Okay, no, no, Jughead is a good, it would be a good B-side that was never released on CD, and you <laughs> found it, like, by doing Torrents. And it was like on a twelve inch, because like it's kind of fun, but like it has no need to be there. That's what I mean when I say you take twenty minutes off of this, right? Yeah, it, I don't think Thunder is that great. Um, oh, whoa, no, 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 that's all right, incredible. all right. So we disagree there. Push certainly could go, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I, I could flip a coin on Live for Love. Sometimes I'm like, I appreciate part of it, but there's some terrible rapping in it. Yeah, that you really can't end it. though with Insatiable. I mean, that's the problem. You know, he, he has a sequencing issue there. Yeah. Scott, I gotta ask you. Uh, I, I I have always thought <laughs> this is maybe as close as uh, Prince has, has ever come to his version of, of Roxy Music's Avalon. Mm. This is his mature sex album yeah. for well, adults. I you know, <laughs> let's just face it. This is an album that's meant to appeal to me, right? I mean, th- this is an album in which he's playing to his strengths. It's an album in which you can the, the, the hooks are very clean and clear on a number of these tracks. Uh, uh, you know, and again, outside of the Tony M tracks, this would be a, a, a really a, a classic kind of album. Something as simple as the title track, Diamonds and Pearls, which was oh. also a, a hit. Top five. Oh, it's so good. This, you know, yeah. you have that five note bass figure. And Prince is smart enough to get out of the way, right? That is so prominent. It's so good. He knows it. And, he, you know, the, vocally, the, there's a vocal echo of that bass figure afterwards. He doesn't muddy it up. You know, it's some, some, something like um, sometimes it snows in that he there's no need for orchestration. To, it's just, he even manages to make that early 90s cheesy synth sound mm-hmm. somehow sound classy. Like you hear that and you think, oh, is, that could be Celine Dion, but he somehow <laughs> uses it with taste. And that little part where there's like that regal fanfare and the horns. Yes. Oh, uh-huh. yes. this is so good. Really good. So good. Which one of us is right? If we always fight, can we just love
Eli covered a lot of my territory, which is perfectly fine. But I mean, cream, you're filthy, cute, and baby, you know it. That's that's just absolutely, you know, a T Rex, you know, ripoff sort of sort of line there from Get It On, Bang a Gong. Uh, Strolling, very good. Willing and able, you guys both identified as you know one of the really great tracks here. One thing I'll say is something like Strolling and then Willing and Able and Money Don't Matter Tonight. New Power Generation, they can play. It's a pretty talented band that he's surrounded him with. And when you hear that sort of jazzy funk on Willing and Able, uh, sort of the jazz guitar and the inventive drum moves on on Strolling, and Money Don't Matter Tonight is as close, unless there's something to come, as close as Prince would have to, to, to Yacht Rock. There's something very sort of pristine about Money Don't Matter Tonight, the way it's recorded, the cleanness of the, of the, of the track. Um, and I don't hear that in a lot of other places with his, with his work. The band sounds really good here. New Power Generation sounds good. I'm with Jeff on Thunder. I think it's a good leadoff track. I'd leave it if I were to you know, parse some of the tracks on Diamonds and Pearls. It's just, again, it's an album where I think Prince said, it's about time I just show people I can still do it. And then he went out and did it, like, five, you know, five times. Look, here's a cool investment They're telling him he just can't lose So he goes out and tries to find a partner But all he finds are users All he finds are snakes in every color Every nationality and sight Songs. And then he let Tony M rap. Damn right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so Dimes, close. Diamonds and Pearls so and Cream and Get Off, they were everywhere. This was a really popular album, really popular songs. I think all, I, all was, three were top ten. It was the first Prince album that I remember really like being everywhere that I could not avoid as a kid. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah, as, yeah, as, yeah. As I remember, at, at this age, I would have been ten. You know, I didn't turn eleven until September. So I was young, but I had the impression of Cream and Diamonds and Pearls. Those videos you could not avoid seeing on MTV, hearing them on the radio. And I was scared of this music. I won't lie about it. I, I was telling you, I joked about this in my emails, but it's true. When you're that young and this guy, I, mean, I was a smart young kid. So I understood <laughs> this man is talking about sexy time. I'm not ready for sexy time. I actually thought that to myself. It's like, I don't want to know. I thought, I don't want to know what he's talking about. And so I I ran away from this album when I was a kid, and I came back to it much later, and I found out that it was just a fantastic record. But that's what I mean when I say it's like it's a record for adults. Yeah, you know, it's definitely like yeah, this is you know this is adult you know emotions and sexual sexual healing basically. But I, as I said, you you, you take away you take away Tony man, and and there's just nothing not to love about it. I like the diversity 
of Diamonds and Pearls because this shows, I mean, this is in its own way as stylistically and musically diverse a record as Parade mm-hmm. or as Purple mm-hmm. Rain or 1999 for that matter. You've got like this weird jazzy stuff he's doing on Strolling and Will and Enable. You have the smooth, just radio ready Diamonds and Pearls. You know, Scott, you talked about it, but I, I think it's one of his most perfect pop songs ever. I, I, everything you know, the all the female backing vocals, that weird round yeah, delay. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's just a beautifully assembled song, and I think it's actually kind of telling. This is the same time where he records that really wonderful live version of uh, "Nothing Compares to You" with Rosie Gaines. Oh I yeah, think, yeah, and that's the one that ends up on the greatest hits. And you know, I wouldn't mind dropping a clip of it in here because it is a fantastic live performance, and a lot of people think it's the greatest live performance uh, of that, the greatest version of that song that's ever been done. But you know, I think of that in the same way I think of Diamonds and Pearls as these great, you know, duets with, with you know, you know, a woman in the, the, the sort of the later period of his career. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, get off, money don't matter tonight. This is an album, I think, that it was huge in its time. But when people now retrospectively appraise Prince, they say, it's great. You should totally hear it. It doesn't still have that same sort of weird granite-like cultural purchase that Purple Correct. Rain or 1999 yeah. or Sign of the Times has. And that's wrong. It should. It is, I think, of that quality, which is why I return at the end of this show to my core thesis, which is that the true imperial period of Prince started in 1979, and it still hasn't ended yet. That's where Batman. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) we'll leave it on that querulous note, Ela. Tony M. Scott. I'm just. I mean, I agree with you that, like, it's true. This is a great record, and he's still putting out really good work. And it's a mistake to dismiss everything after "Sign of the Times." Obviously, "Love Sexy," one of his great, great records. It's just there is. I think there's there is a kind of drop off in the following sense. When we're listening to "Purple Rain," or for that matter, you know, 1999 or "Dirty Mind," it's like there are no bad there's nothing that makes cringe we're getting cringe at the end of the 80s that's all i want to say and and most of it is phenomenal but there is there's cringiness that's that's there that's all i would say you you want a good good old school 90s callback that prince might have appreciated here's john mclaughlin wrong (laughs) all right (laughs) wrong morton kondraki fred the beetle bonds i will tell you the real cliff dive and recovery does not come until our next episode. This, I do not think, represents one at all. But, of course, that's a story for another day. That's right. We have to close this day with our recommendations to you, the listener, for the two albums from this era that you should own and the five songs that you must hear from this part two era of our look at Prince Eli Lake from Commentary and Elsewhere. He's our guest once again, and we send it over to him for his two albums and five songs from this era of Prince, Eli. Okay, so on the albums, uh, Sign of the Times, that's an obvious one to me. When we were talking about the episodes, it's like the purple rain of the second the second Prince episode. It's like, I feel like I have to have it in there. Um, and for the second one, uh, for me, it's a toss-up between Love Sexy and Parade. Uh and I can argue it. They're like it's one A and one B for me, um, and it's hard for me to pick. But I'm gonna just 
fairly give it to uh, I'm going to give it to Parade because there's there, sometimes it says in April is such an essential track and Mountains is such an essential track and I like the the weirdness of it um, but you know if you would have asked me tomorrow I probably would say Love Sexy <laughs> because they're that close to me all right let's go through the songs uh, The Ballad of Dorothy Parker off Sign of the Times uh, we've discussed it it's one of the most wonderful pieces of music ever I've heard. Adore off of Sign of the Times. Yes, Jeff, Adore, which I consider to be the greatest love song ever written and uh, maybe Prince's finest work. Hey, Eli, uh, Eli, I hate to interrupt you. Who's the person that you least like in journalism? Uh, he's going to be the guest for part three. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Um, and, um, okay, so we've got Tarthy Parker, Adore, Sometimes it snows in April. That uh, has to be on that list. It's uh, it's, it's it's incredible. Um, and then there's two slots left. I am going to cheat because I want to include Crucial, which uh, I mean. Hey, Eli, t- listen, listen, listen. You're a three-part guest. You get to throw a sixth song in. Okay. All right. Thank you. Does Crucial count as next episode or this episode? Because I put it on this episode. Yeah, okay. I don't think of it as a Crystal Ball. Crystal Ball is just a compilation anyway. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So let's – because he records it in this period. It, it's it so was, good. It, it was been Adore's on, It should have been on the albums. Well, it was It was Adore bumped Crucial. I love Crucial. And, I, that and that's, why I, that's why I hate Adore. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Crucial is so great. It's – he's – I mean, I, I, he's in conversation with Smokey Robinson. He sings certain words like girl in that song, the way that Smokey would sing them. But he's doing so much more because he's got the full kind of Purple Rain era synth and heavy guitar. The guitar solo is great. Um, it's such a great song. I love Adore and Crucial so much. I'm putting them both on. So that's OK. So I've got Adore. Sometimes it's the most snows in April. Dorothy Parker, Crucial. Um, I, 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 I have I, I was going to do this. But I'm not going to do this since you're giving me six. I was going to say all of Love Sexy because it's a single track. No. <laughs> you cannot do that. I realize that. It's not that Supper's Ready, dude. It's, it's, yeah, it's Love I Sexy. Understand. I understand. Our notes, I said it was like a quick one while he's gone uh, by The Who, which I think is also like one of their underrated uh, masterpieces. So I, I'm not getting to do that. So I'm going to include positivity. Uh, and if I get one more, it's got to be joy and repetition. I feel all good right. about that list. All right, so my two albums, uh, Sound of the Times, and I think it's I think it's Diamonds and Pearls, despite despite Tony M's presence on uh, on a few of those songs on Diamonds and Pearls. It's it's still one that probably has the most depth in terms of quality songs. Uh, I think from this era, so I'll put Diamonds and Pearls on that list too. Five songs will start early with Mountains, uh, just a fantastic song, my favorite moment of that album, Parade. Uh, I'll take It from Sound of the Times. Uh, we'll go with Anastasia from that album. Um, I am, you know, I am going to salvage something for the Batman soundtrack. Vicky Waiting is so good. Uh, that'll be on my list of five. And from Diamonds and Pearls, Cream is, I think, the best one of those singles. Cream is so good. And as Eli said, it always sort of had that glamminess hidden in the funk, and it comes to full fruition on Cream, which is a fantastic song. And that's 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 five right there. I'll leave the rest off and send it over to Jeff for his list. 
All right. Well, I mean, I I'm not gonna be, you know be cryptic when it comes to the two albums. I, I think it's just pretty obviously Parade and it's Sign of the Times. You know, there's a lot of backstory and there's a lot of these albums that might have been notional records, all these what 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 have you. But the ones that came out, those are clearly the ones you need. Um, and, yeah, I would say you know get the nine CD super deluxe version of Sign <laughs> of the Times, so you get all the outtakes and live concert stuff and all that. Yeah, but yeah, listen, just get Sign of the Times. Um, as for my five songs, gosh, this is really really hard. Uh, I'll start with Sometimes It Snows in April, which is of course beautiful song uh the one that ends parade uh it, it's it's not it's not cheese it's not chintz it's the opposite of it it's what i wish we got more of from prince acoustic guitar beauty i think if i had to choose one of the outtakes from this era it's going to be one from dream factory called train we talked about it gave it to mavis staples well i don't know why it was the one time where you know prince should have pulled a kiss should have pulled it back and said, no, you can't have this because it's too good because it's one of his greatest outtakes ever. From Sign of the Times, oh gosh, what do you pick? Dorothy Parker, obviously, is one we've talked about a lot and I love. So that's one of my choices. And I think the other one would be If I Was Your Girlfriend, oh, which yeah, is a song yeah. that we didn't really spend enough time exploring because there are probably too many layers to get into. The psychology of that is so complex. You know, it's like, you know, he says your girlfriend. There are different kinds of girlfriends that you could be, you know, and is he singing as Prince or is he singing as Camille, this sort of female alter ego of Prince? Is Camille like sort of a male inside a woman's body or an actual woman? You could just like write dissertations about this. It could be a gender studies PhD <laughs> written about if I was your girlfriend. And I actually don't mean that as an insult. I think it's an endlessly fascinating song, both sonically and lyrically. And it's one of those times where, like you know, we've talked in the you know on this show even about how Prince's lyrics weren't his strongest suit, but sometimes he can tap into this weird subconscious vein that is you know this sort of passes rational understanding, and he's just an you know, unmediated like weird eros or or some sort of you know empathy, and, and and that song captures it. And I guess the last one I'll mention is the Diamonds and Pearls. It's the title track, of course, from the album, and as I already just recently said, I think it's one of the great pop songs of that or any era. It's one of Prince's great late-era songs, uh, and it's one of those little things where I, I just, you know, I, I listen to the little, uh, the give and take between him and his backing vocalists, and I, I could basically listen to that all day, every day. Part two, part three, is yet to come as we look at the career and music of Prince. 
We thank our guest, Eli Lake, a contributing editor for Commentary, fellow with the Clements Center at UT Austin, and the new podcast debuting soon on the nebulous network called The Re-Education with Eli Lake. Find him on Twitter, at Eli Lake. And Eli, despite what Jeff has threatened, I uh, will welcome <laughs> you back for episode three of our oh, Prince journey. okay. <laughs> uh, Eli, thanks. We'll see you next time. Oh, it's great. Thanks. Uh, Jeff, we leave things off here in, what, around 1991. We've got a whole lot of material uh, left to cover hey, in part three. Hey, guys, things are going to get really, really crazy uh, starting immediately I, on our next episode. I think more than ever, I need that Sherpa uh, through the last part of Prince's career here. You're going to hear the acronym TAFCAP a lot okay. uh, for the opening part of the next episode. Okay. You can figure it out soon. Uh, find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. I'm there too, uh, at Scott Bertram, S-C-O-T-B-E-R-T-R-A-M. A reminder to check us out over on Patreon for bonus material and playlists and remastered episodes and um, higher audio quality, all that good stuff. Support us, help the show over at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Now to the part of the program where we thank our Patreon supporters individually for helping us keep the show ad-free and supporting us in all of our efforts. Thank you, Mark Prop, Cindy McNary, Douglas Post, Jeremy Eaves, Brian Myrick, David Wendell, and David Christensen. And one more, I just it's right here on the list. Eli Lake, not just a guest but a supporter of Political Beats. You can be too. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Also subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, but those are lower quality. You know, you want the, the Patreon level quality, so go over there. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Political underscore Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.